men doing tonight tonight i'm an idiot today for me it's uh 10 14 a.m what time is it for you hassan it's uh 3 15 in the afternoon 3 15 in the wrong time zone so how how are you doing this morning afternoon i'm doing okay you've just been chatting with me so there's nothing there's nothing new going on bro don't tell them <laughs> yeah we, we've been talking for like <laughs> We have, to, we have to pretend that we because materialize we, we, when the stream starts. Like, we don't exist until the stream starts, and then we materialize no. the guys on the stream. We, no, we, have, yeah, we, we can't let them know that we've actually been talking for, like, the last two and a half hours, and I made them wait 15 minutes for absolutely nothing. Because I, yeah. I told everybody, like, big big time, like, we're going to be here at 10 a.m. We're going we're gonna to be here. And then everybody's been, there's been, like, 10 people just sitting here twiddling their thumbs. I mean, to be honest, guys, you probably didn't have anything better to do. I mean, it's a, it's a Saturday morning. What do you, what else do you have to do? Most of you single, single guys, Saturday morning, no school. I mean, if you work, it's probably at, in the afternoon. Like what, what, what else do you have to do besides sit here and wait for Hassan and I to come? So I think it's I'm just, sure, I'm sure they can, they can do all this stuff while they wait as well. I don't know. I've I've heard I've heard that most of my listeners are actually illiterate and that's why they're that's why it's, they're here. It's voluntary illiterates, so it's moral. <laughs> it's voluntary illiterates. Yes, it's, it's it's a moral issue, not a skill issue. Okay, what was I what was I supposed to tell you guys about? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you go to I'm gonna pull it up. If you go to the description or I'm about to send uh send it Discord link to the now Numenites it used to be the radical Numenites, but discord told me to change it to the Numenites. So yes, I bowed down to the powers of discord. Uh, so it's called the Numenites now. Uh, it's a cool group. We got, we got, it, I mean, it's, it's more ordered towards Catholic fellowship. Uh, find some, you find some Catholic friends that are pretty cool. Um, it's also ordered towards uh, forming you into not being an idiot uh and uh, we're not we're not doing too good of a job there as you'll as you'll tell once you get in um but yeah just if you act like an idiot you'll just get hit over the head and you'll kind of learn your lesson uh, a bit it's also ordered towards uh we have we have chats for for questions that you may have about the the catholic faith you'll get answered by somebody who um usually will know what they're talking about uh we kind of have like roles that distinguish people who know what they're talking about versus people who don't know what they're talking about um, and then we also have uh, times for prayer too. Uh, that's something that I run. 
uh, usually morning, afternoon, and then evening. So, oh gosh. <laughs> what are you laughing at? <laughs> I think I saw Owned. it as well. Owned. So, yeah. um, so yes, that is join join the Discord, and you'll be able to get all that. And hi, Lexi. Why are you brushing your teeth in here? Oh, you're looking for something. Okay. Yeah. Hassan is our scholar. So true. Okay, so what are we what do we talk what are we supposed to talk about this morning, Hassan? Oh yeah, we have questions. Uh, if you want to throw questions in there, we'll answer them. But this morning we wanted to talk about the I don't, I don't even I don't even know how to how to phrase this. It's just the uh, well, the, just the depressing. Just, yeah. The uh, sad. Just the, name the video, bro. Okay, the I, I I don't know how to how to like describe uh, our our feelings about it before we get into it. It's not um, all bad. It's not all bad. Okay, so. okay, yeah. I I guess it. You know, I Hassan's right. I'm being a very strong pessimist here. Yeah. Because uh, the, the the only thing I happen to know about that they were talking about happened to be the part where they did terrible in. So <laughs> it's it, it's kind of it's kind of one of those things where, where you, you overemphasize the part that you know about. Oh, I mean, I, I really, I, I thought, um, Swan, his video wasn't terrible. Um, I, I actually think it's one of the better ones. Uh, I thought Jimmy's and Trent's, they had some huge problems, uh, with, with their videos. But I mean, I, I think the, the big, uh, the, the vast majority of the responses from Catholics uh, to Gavin's video and icons have been a bit lackluster. And I think if you uh, add some nuance uh, to the discussion that we will be able to uh, not, not really be uh, shaken by it at all. Uh, honestly, I am as shaken by the, the lack of universal icon veneration among the uh, first Three, four, five, uh, three, four, five centuries of uh, Christians, as I am by the lack of mitre usage among that era of Christians, I, I really don't think it's uh, it's that huge of a deal um, that that this yeah. didn't materialize in a universal sense during that time. And we're going to get into a little bit of the the principles of why that's the case. But Son, did you have any general comments to make? I mean, it's it's like. <clears throat> What you've got to think about is like the um, uh, the unity of the legs credendi, legs credendi, and legs credendi means that as uh, as conceptual data is derived from the same object, uh, the deposit of revelation, you you get you get um, a development necessarily in things that reflect new conceptual discoveries, new conceptual derivations, conclusions, right? And so that's that's what you're going to get in in terms of worship practices and in terms of uh, like moral customs, right? So so moral custom is going to develop, or what moral customs ought to develop, will be better understood through the you know, better understanding of the the unity of the three aspects of theology. 
Yeah, I, I think I think the the general place that this discussion uh, needs to go into is specifically how devotional and liturgical practices relate to underlying uh, teaching of the church. Is is something I, I think a perfect a perfect example of this would be um, debates surrounding like the Sacred Heart devotion. Is the the Sacred Heart devotion. Do, in, or, in order to um, justify our usage of that specific, specific, specific devotion form that's used universally um, in the, the Latin rite, something which has been stamped with approval by the Roman Church, do we need to prove that it is an apostolic practice? I think everybody would recognize, and I think even like Eastern Orthodox and Protestants would recognize, like, yeah, of course we don't need to um, prove that these specific devotional and liturgical uh, practices were present and practiced uh, throughout the entire history of the church in the same way. Like everybody would recognize that that would be kind of a ridiculous uh, demand to make. I mean, everybody except like the insane regulative principle Puritan types would recognize this as, as clearly being uh, not the case. But on the, on the other hand, um, what we do need to prove and what we do need to justify is we need to justify that the that the theological principles are conceptually present in the revealed data, and then this gets in this gets into um, arguments from uh, the arguments from Revelation, really, from the specific uh, writings of the apostles uh, that's called the New Testament, and also from the un uh, the unwritten traditions of of the apostolic teaching. So it, it, this really isn't a huge deal. Um, and, and actually, if, if you look at something, and, and the reason I use this specifically use the example of miters is actually uh, miters. And if you, you guys don't know, because somebody did ask me about what miters were when I was discussing this yesterday, miters are the hats that bishops wear. Uh, and and that, that is a certain representation, actually, of their teaching office and of standing in the, in the place of Christ in a... Um, in, in mostly in most of their teaching function, uh, actually, at least from what I have heard explained to me uh, from from the history of miters. But when it comes to uh, the, the history of their implementation of specific hats that bishops would wear to distinguish them from the rest from from laymen and then also eventually from the uh, from other clerics in their specific uh, teaching function was I, I have seen. <laughs> actually that this this practice did come from uh, come from the pagans um and you get specific fathers who actually condemn the usage of miters amongst the pagans uh an example is the uh is uh, saint augustine in on the city of god uh if uh, I, I had a professor one time comment that he was reading uh in protestant professor reading city of god one time and he came across this passage on Augustine making fun of the miters of all of the the pagan priests. He was he was he was making fun of them, how stupid they looked with all of their miters. And then he decided to. And then he just looked to the front cover, and it was a picture of Augustine wearing a miter, uh, because Augustine was uh, was a bishop. So you can you can have specific uh, specific liturgical practices, which are completely uh, really completely reversed. While also keeping uh, the 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 same underlying uh, the same underlying doctrinal principles, 
And I think this is this is actually something which should be recognized uh, from the history of Protestant liturgy is what what you have in the in the first generation. So I'm going to challenge uh, at least the classical forms of Protestants to be uh, to be consistent on this one. What you have in the first generation of uh, Luther's Luther's uh, liturgy is his liturgy of of the canon of the mass was basically completely stripped down um to the words of institution and then over time uh throughout the uh throughout the ages as you get further away from the reformation the liturgy of the lutherans begins to look a lot more roman now this happens in uh theologically conservative lutheran circles um the, the Lutherans don't believe anything different than they did believe in the, uh, at least in the confessional era of, of Lutheranism. So why, why was there this almost complete reversal uh, to being as almost as far away from, from Rome as you can in, in basic liturgical practice to going towards uh, looking like the Romans a lot? Well, well, the reason was, is they would say in the first generation, they didn't want the they, they wanted the people to be able to sharply distinguish from what they would call the, the idolatry of the papacy or well, the, the idolatry of the papists in the in certain things like the sacrifice of the mass. So they want they wanted to sharply distinguish what they were doing from what Rome was doing over over all of these uh, over various generations. But the thing is, as you get further away from the Reformation. And as you get people who are maybe the great, 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 great grandchildren of these people, and sometimes in some areas, such as uh, American Lutheranism, you don't even get people who are interacting uh, with Roman Catholics at all. It's, it's not as necessary to, to sharply distinguish uh, yourself from, uh, from Roman Catholics. So now, now apply this to the apostolic era. What, what, did you, what, did you have, what was the situation that the first generation or second generation or third generation uh, of the church was dealing with when it was majority pagan. They, they really were dealing with a, uh, a type of popular worship that was, that was very blatantly uh, attached to uh, material uh, representation. So obviously um, it, you're, you're going to be very, very, very tempered uh, with how you're going to use things like imagery uh, you're going to be very, very tempered about these uh, about these things, as not to uh, have the people who might have grown up like this, or uh, might may have just uh, grown up around people like this. You're you're going to want to make sure uh, that they don't fall into these same error uh, errors. But as certain accidental situations uh, change, you're you're going to be able to apply the law differently. Uh, and, and this this is really how. Uh, actually a lot of different uh, liturgical developments happen over the history of the church. And again, even, even Protestants uh, recognize this uh, when it comes to the history of their own liturgical developments. Why, why was Calvin's Geneva uh, like this, <laughs> where, where they didn't even use anything uh, besides the, uh, they're really exclusive psalmist. They didn't use anything besides the Psalter acapella. Why, why was it like that then? But now when you go to most uh, even conservative reformed churches, you get looked at weird if you were a uh, exclusive psalmody uh, acapella uh, guy. Well, 
the the accidental circumstances of your situation change. Therefore, the liturgical law is applied differently. So really, uh, for, for the most part, this discussion almost has nothing to do. Uh, it, it does a little bit. And, and I think uh, we, we can recognize in certain ways, as Hassan has pointed out, that this does have something to do uh, with the development of doctrine, uh, which, which underlies the application of the liturgical law. But even without uh, w- without much development, we can we can recognize that it's more so the case of really accidental circumstances uh, in, in situational uh, in, in the situation changing uh, for the fact that the the uh, the application of the law has changed. So d- does that seem like a good uh, sort of summary, Hassan? Yeah, <clears throat> I think so. Uh, and then that really brings us to the what we discussed really early on about this, which is that. There is a proposition by some people based upon uh, legendary information that, uh, and, and also based upon the opinion of the fathers at Nicaea too, that not only is this a homologous change, but it's not really so much a change so much as it is a practice that already existed becoming more widespread. So they talk about mm-hmm. it as like um, <clears throat> the deposit of the apostles and their derivation of uh, uh, of like um, conceptually present uh, data, uh, um, like data within the uh, deposit of revelation, already included veneration of icons, and that this spread. Right, it spread from an apostolic matrix throughout the rest of the church, and it wasn't taken up immediately, but it spread. Right. And and they do they do acknowledge that like the veneration of icons like became more widespread and became more overt and more ornate, but they don't they don't acknowledge that it is a, a passage from not doing it to doing it right. Whereas we would we would disagree with the the council fathers and we would disagree with some of the EOs and a small minority of Catholics who actually think that things like the story of the image of Edessa are real and things like that right. Yeah. So, oh, you but, but but cru- crucially, crucially, it doesn't matter, right? Which is what we agreed. Upon. It doesn't matter. The primary argument is whether or not it is not a heterolog- uh, uh, heterologous uh, change, whether or not it is a transformation of what was received, or merely a progress of conceptual derivation. And as I was saying before, the the integral unity of the Lex credendi, lex orandi, and lex vivendi. Whether or not this further development of what was conceptually present in the lex credendi would lead to a homologous change in the lex orandi and the lex vivendi of the church. Hence the moral obligation not to be opposed to the kissing of the icons and hence the use of the icons in worship widespread throughout the entire church. Um, and so... Uh, and so this is what's what's really going on is that there is a parallel development of prayer and worship and life next to the development of doctrine. Uh, and and so so this is this is uh, this is the point. It it really it really doesn't matter. Uh, it, it really doesn't matter whether or not it was uh, where whether or not it was explicitly known. So long as it is not a heterologous development. What do you uh, what do you think of that? Yeah, I, I actually uh, meant to, uh, because somebody 
somebody uh, brought up a common disposition uh, towards those who would think of, uh, think likewise about like the story of Odessa. I think, honestly, I think this is this is going to be uh, huge because, as we've seen uh, with some of the responses to this, um, you you see that Craig Truglia, uh, the Eastern Orthodox, and uh, the other Paul, who we all obviously know that those two have actually kind of <laughs> kind of paired up to fight uh <laughs> paired up to fight the catholics i know weird weird sort of um weird sort of uh how, how do i put it uh, team right there to, to fight the catholics orthodox versus uh protestant but what, what they're saying is that uh that our our view on this is is basically one big one big cope and then uh on the one side truly is going to be like okay all the all the historical scholarship is basically bunk and it's all uh stupid and then paul's going to say well all the historical scholarship is correct but they're both going to agree that we're wrong on on sort of our our view of the application of liturgical law and development both ideas i think which are basically common sense and we find examples of this within protestantism but basically you're going to get this dis uh, disposition right here from uh y uh, vf that consensus on historical scholarship does not determine the truth higher criticism so, th so they're going to view us as uh, essentially liberals uh for for how we are uh supporting um how how we're kind of taking the common narrative as as they'll think is they'll think we're conceding to babylon by uh not not holding to uh that Luke painted the, the the first icon and and such and so forth. So how how would you uh, think about this, Hassan? Because uh, you you you've thought about this a lot more than me. Uh, well, what what part of it? Well, well, the the fact that us us making these uh, making these concessions uh, to to some common uh, narratives of the development of certain liturgical practices and beliefs is not just a big old concession to uh to liberal scholarship and that where, where on the other hand you have the base trad and conservative uh eastern orthodox who are actually holding what the what our holy fathers at uh nicaea to help do well this is this we talked about this earlier this is part of what uh father thomas joseph white in his the light of christ calls a facile credulousness um and this this goes beyond taking the church as an infallible rule of faith and taking the church as an authoritative teacher and when she teaches fallibly it goes beyond this and it treats something as just because it is received it must be true because otherwise otherwise somebody begins to um somebody begins to treat intrinsic arguments as necessary for a modally supernatural assent of uh, uh, assent to propositions and um, this is why, as, as we were saying, the, the flip side of um, the excessive uh, the, the, uh, the sort of like excessive credulousness is a sort of radical skepticism, an excessive skepticism. And they kind of coincide just like all failures to adhere to a via media do, uh, where, for example, somebody who is very prideful often is insecure. So they have something that goes off of the mean of humility right in both directions usually usually a vice is a failure in both directions to adhere to the mean uh, and it's it's not coherent but no sin is coherent right uh so 
So in the same in in the same way, this kind of like strange credulousness comes alongside an insistence that there must be as many intrinsic arguments as there can be for a doctrine. Any any sort of possibility that the intrinsic arguments are not very good uh, kind of like harms somebody's sense of that they can cling to the faith because the reason by which they cling to the faith are the intrinsic arguments and not the extrinsic authority of God revealing as proposed by the secondary authority of the church proposing. Yeah, exactly. So, so these people are are stuck in this sort of loop because they they feel they feel the need to justify uh, in, intrinsically uh, that something is true. So, because of this incessant uh, insecurity about the truth of the faith, they'll accept anything that they can get. Really, they they they'll put forward anything they can get their hands on even if it isn't something that is uh, too convincing. And this is, this is a vice that we see uh, very, very commonly. So, so we have to uh, be honest. Uh, on the one hand, we have to be honest uh, with the evidence. And on the other hand, we have to uh, put forward a reasonable explanation uh, for, for the evidence that doesn't contradict uh, anything that the church has taught. But I can I can hear the I can hear the objection right now, Hassan. And uh, I, I know you've done some done some study uh, into uh, some of the documents surrounding Nicaea too. But I can hear the objection that well, Nicaea too clearly uh, they they clearly believed and they write about uh, in the council documents that this was the practice of the apostles and the universal practice of the early church. Now we we can have some uh, certitude that this was not the universal practice of the, of the early church. So how would you, uh, how, how would you exactly respond to the argument? Because the, the objector is going to say, well, either you have to accept, uh, actually there's, there's a, there's a fun little chart about this. Uh, while you explain that, I'll pull up the, the chart uh, in order to illustrate. So, this is very this is very important it's good that we're getting onto this but the way that the magisterium works is that what is formally asserted has to be believed right what is formally asserted has to be believed if it's formally asserted definitively it has to be believed with the be believed with the assent of faith and if it's formally asserted uh otherwise then it must be assented to with submission of will and intellect now at the same time uh, now, at the same time, when you look at uh, when you look at something like the council using something as part of its rationale, you have to look at if this is actually the core argument. But it's not the core argument. It's illustrative, right? It's an attempt to illustrate that there is no con that the conceptual derivation is not foreign to the actual object, such that there is a transformation. The actual argument is just that there is no transformation. And the way, and, and Nicaea 2 makes two fundamental arguments. I was talking to Christian about this earlier. The two fundamental arguments of Nicaea 2 are first, that the, um, first, that the, uh, uh, the sort of like philosophical argument they draw about honoring an image is only a redounding of honor from the image to the imaged. Okay, that's fine. But the fundamental argument that they're making is not about this. It's ecclesiological. 
because Isaiah 42 and other texts, and this is recorded in the Acts, which you can read from Father Richard Price, the the council is uh, the council fathers are very clear that since the Old Testament prophesizes that Christ would defeat idolatry and would remove idolatry from the Christians, it cannot be that not only will individual Christians be committing idolatry, but there would be an institutional, widespread, and universal acceptance of an idolatrous practice. If this was the case, it would mean that the church had become idolatrous formally. It would mean that her she would have a materially idolatrous action as part of her rights. And if this was the case, then we would be waging war against the prophecy of scripture itself. And so the main principle underlying the whole of Nicaea 2 is an outrage against the robber council where the robber council has said effectively that the prophecies of Christ do not apply to the church in the manner in which scripture says that they apply. And this, this, by the way, this ecclesiological argument is used for centuries and centuries in the church. Auctorem Fidei and the Council of Trent use the same principle when they state explicitly that something cannot be intrinsically harmful if it's promulgated in the Roman liturgy. And this comes from the principle that anything which God does not approve in worship is materially idolatrous, at least, right? Yeah. This is, Christian made this point before, Islamic prayers, even when the content is not false, are materially idolatrous insofar as they depend upon uh, claiming that they are approved by a divine authority when they are not, right? So anything which is materially idolatrous, any anything which any kind of worship unapproved by God is materially idolatrous. Any kind of worship which is intrinsically harmful to the faithful cannot be approved by God and therefore must be materially idolatrous. And so the, the church is incapable of worshiping as a whole body in a materially idolatrous fashion. Otherwise, we, we destroy the prophecies of Scripture. Um, and so so um image veneration is kind of like negatively proven in this way to be something that cannot be idolatrous because it because it would mean that scripture is is disproven however this argument obviously doesn't really work for protestants it only works for people who conceded uh, certain ecclesiological ecclesiological doctrines uh, about the church's corporate infallibility at the time uh, so so the the council's argument doesn't really stand for for people who are gonna um you know for people who are gonna be um uh objecting to the more core principle yeah i i that that we have to be i i think we have to be very careful uh even even so you've already said that this is this is a secondary argument of the council we have to be very clear about what exactly is defined uh, within documents. Like this comes up in uh, in Pope Leo the Thirteenth's uh, writing against apostolic orders. Uh, I mean, apostolic Anglican orders. So when when we look at all of the arguments that Leo the Thirteenth has given, um, if if we think that the arguments are bad. It's entirely possible 
that we would. Uh, obviously, we wouldn't uh, hastily just say like, oh, Holy Father, uh, you do not know what you're talking about and you make bad arguments. Uh, if we if we think that the that an argument doesn't have merit or that it's uh, or that there is an issue with one of the, the premises of the argument, that that is not what is being formally defined by the document. What is being formally defined by the document is the conclusion. The uh, the arguments within the document are they're really accidental. If if Pope Leo uh, wanted to just come out and just write Anglican valid uh, Anglican valid Anglican orders are uh, invalid, uh, he could have just said that and then sent it out, and everybody would have to assent to that. But I mean, uh, he didn't want to do that. He wanted to give uh, certain reasons uh, for his conclusion. So what really what we have to assent to uh, in Nicaea too isn't some particular argument on its own. What we have to uh, primarily uh, assent to is that which is formally defined. So the fact that the apostles venerated icons is not something which is formally defined uh, in the documents. So uh, really, really this, this image uh, is a bit uh, disingenuous when it says contradicts Nicaea too. Well, what do you mean by contradict Nicaea too? Do you mean materially contradict uh, one of the uh, materially contradict one of the documents in uh, one of the secondary arguments it gives? Well, I guess yeah, we're contradicting Nicaea too in, in that case. Do you mean formally contradict that which is defined? No, no. If if you formally contradict that which is defined, you're a heretic, and you don't have uh, you don't have the faith. So. Uh, so, so yeah, that that is that that's really what's what's the problem here. That ends by uh, mud development. Uh, one, I I don't think any of these guys really know what development uh, means, because if you didn't have development, and, and this is being uh, this this is being uh, really just blunt, but if you didn't have any development, all you would be able to do would be republish copies of the Bible. Because development either involves, uh, in one case, uh, the uh, so-called uh, nominal uh, development, or it's called first-order development by uh, by Father Sola. That is uh, clarifying uh, that which is uh, said. So it'd be like going from uh, Hassan as a man to Hassan as a rational animal. Those those two propositions. Uh, they actually aren't even conceptually uh, distinct. You're just going from um, from the the statement of what something is uh, to to the definition uh, of of what something is. Uh, there there is there's actually no uh, development there, uh, really in, in the sense. Uh, there is development there is what I meant, but there's no uh, right. development from one concept to another. And then the second degree of development is going to be uh, going into what is conceptually <clears throat> present already in the thing. So if you're if you're going to oppose development as a, uh, on principle, uh, then then really you're not going to be able to go from the revealed data. Uh, you're you're not going to even be able to clarify your statements, because uh, at any sort of change, whether nominal or or uh, so-called virtual or conceptual, however nominal or conceptual, I'll use that language, first order or second order. If you want to learn about this, uh, check out the series that I've started on the uh, evolution of Catholic dogma. I I explain this, but whether whether uh, 
first order or second order, it's, it's still within the within the framework of our uh, development. So it's not whether you believe in development of doctrine, it's what kind of development of doctrine you believe in. And even then, I don't I don't think most of these people, uh, if you explain terms correctly, would have any sort of problem. So again, that that's also uh, a bit uh, disingenuous to to pull up uh, development of doctrine on here, considering everybody believes in it. I mean, I'm gonna be. Uh, let me let me make two points about this. First of all, most people have an unfair version of the concept of development of doctrine in our teachings, mostly because people associate it too heavily with Newman, as you have said yourself. Yes. And secondly, because the version of it that's being taught on the internet is wrong. There, there are major errors with the way that doctrinal development is being expressed on the internet, right? The way that people are receiving it has nothing to do in many ways with the traditional concept. Some people don't understand how theological sources work. So they have no idea how the conceptual derivations are made, right? And they are, for example, when somebody tries to claim, uh, I won't name him because we've already named him, that the... Um, that the ceremonies changing in the Old Testament is an example of doctrinal development. No, it's just wrong. It, it, it shows that somebody has no idea of what the concept is, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and the second and the second issue that that people have is that uh, straying straightforwardly into modernism without knowing what the boundary between development of dogma and and the the modernist transformist thesis is. Right. And there is a second point that I wanted to make, which is that the fathers of Nicaea, too, were not ignorant of development of doctrine as a concept, nor did they reject it. The whole church had already accepted conceptually what St. Vincent of Lorenz is talking about in the Comonitorium, which is that uh, the the uh, uh, of ages upon ages in the church, there is a derivation of further conceptual conclusions. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm actually gonna pull up that quote uh, that Vatican One brings up, uh, real quick. I'm because gonna, yeah, th this was yeah. this was taught uh, since the time of, of of Saint Vincent. This isn't anything new in the church. Um, and really, somebody somebody who has only interacted with Newman and uh, really, I, I think some of these people haven't interacted with Newman, because what uh, I've seen this in Father Lagrange and Father Sola is when they're writing about Newman, they're like, yes, obviously, uh, great, brilliant. Um, he, he wrote a very profound work on this, but there's terminological issues. There's a few conceptual issues. And if, if you're not properly trained uh, in, in a uh, sort of section of, of a dogmatic work, uh, such as the STS also has a section on this that I've read. Uh, Father Hunter, he has he has a section on this. Uh, a lot of people have sections on this. If, if you haven't already been properly trained and you just jump into the essay and think that is the only and definitive work on this matter, you're, you're going to get uh, some issues. And why is this? Well, you have to recognize Newman wasn't even Catholic when he wrote the essay. One, he wasn't even Catholic when he wrote the essay. And two, he hadn't uh, really done his major interaction uh, during his time at Rome under under uh, uh, Perone. He, he hadn't done his major interaction with Roman dogmatics yet. You get that in his, uh, where is it? 
uh, don't have it on my desk. Don't know where it is. In his uh, in his essay on the evolution of Catholic dogma, he actually has done a lot more interactions, specifically with Suarez, which Suarez is his own issues. Uh, but he he has a lot more of a uh, a precise uh, understanding of it. And this was just I think two or three years after he wrote his essay that the uh, that the Perone Newman letters uh, were written. So what what you have is you have uh, these modern Catholic apologists who have kind of gotten just normy uh, narratives surrounding what development is. Uh, they're they're really not trained in logic, which logic is going to be the most important uh, discipline to to understand uh, what is going on. Um, and they might have read the might have read the essay. Uh, on on the development of doctrine, they they probably haven't read the Newman Prone letters. They probably haven't read uh, any other treatments. Definitely not Father Sola's treatment or anything in uh, Derivazione from Father Lagrange. So you, you get you get them saying things like uh, that the change from the, the the ceremonial law of the Old Testament to, to the New Testament is the development of doctrine. Where where do you get that? Because uh, this this is what uh, Vatican One how Vatican One describes it. May understanding, knowledge, and wisdom increase as ages and centuries roll along and greatly and vigorously flourish in each and in all, in the individual and the whole church, but only, uh, but this only in its own proper kind, that is to say, in the same doctrine, in the same sense, in the same understanding. So what, do, do you not believe there was some sort of – do you not believe in the New Covenant revelation? Is, is that what you're telling me? That and there, there, there's issues uh, e- even – even then, uh, with with viewing the old covenant as the same as the new covenant, is is that what you're telling me? Is that the new covenant is merely uh, some sort of conceptual development upon the the old covenant? Did did grace and truth not come with our Lord Jesus Christ? It, it, there's there there's there's an infinite amount of issues. Uh, obviously, uh, there's not an infinite amount. Of, there, there's too, there's too many issues to even even talk about uh, with. Uh, with describing the change from the ceremonial law of the old to the new as a development. But that's not even what I'm upset about, really. The What I'm upset about is the fact that uh, people are going to, to listen to this and they're going to use this example when they're talking because I know, I know what's going to happen. And it, this, this, this is going to happen all the time. People are going to listen to that. They're going to hear that. They're going to think it's the best thing since sliced bread. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to go out there. They're going to talk to Protestants. They're going to talk to Orthodox, and they're going to tell them, "Hey, guys, this is an example of doctrinal development. Therefore, you should believe in it." So you know what everybody thinks now. What everybody thinks now is that there is some sort of uh, objective evolution in in a sort of continual revelation through the Roman Magisterium, as there was uh, between the old and the new covenants. That's what they're going to believe. It's damaging not only to the faith of the individual hearing it, but it's also damaging to the witness of the Catholic faith to other people. And people need to stop. People need to stop talking about stuff they don't they don't understand. Um, it, it it really is uh, damaging. What what I liked and I and I wanted to uh, to to compliment Swan on this. If if you listened, uh, if anybody listened to to his presentation, and I I think this is a good analogy, and I'm going to kind of tweak it a bit to to how i think it uh, should be more clear and uh I'll, I'll i'll talk to swan later uh what he thinks about this as a uh, a bit of an editing to to his analogy but he, he talks about it like the, the polaroid 
uh, Polaroid, you kind of have it and it, it clears up over, over time to get your picture. Now, really what the Polaroid is, is in this analogy, the Polaroid is the, is the concept as existing in the intellect. And the thing which is pictured is the, is the thing out there. I use, I use the, the concept of the, the lens, like uh, the divine revelation is kind of like that number chart you get at the doctors. And then uh, they kind of flip the lenses in front of your eyes until you get 2020 vision. Because really what you have to understand is the developments happening in here. It has, it, it is, it exists in the intellect. It exists subjectively with the foundation in the thing, but it exists subjectively. There is no objective development going on. There's no, there's no development in the revelation, which is happening. It's the same revelation, but a increase in understanding uh, in the, in the church and in the individual being able to draw forth um, what is already conceptually present in the, in the same object. It's not like how we think of uh, how we think of the natural sciences, where we actually learn things uh, going on and going forth. It's like how we would think of metaphysics, where in metaphysics, you have these first principles you start with. And all of your conclusions in this uh, in metaphysics or logic or really any of the philosophical disciplines, your conclusions are really uh, what is drawn forth and drawn out of those first principles. And that's just not how the the uh, the popular Catholic figures, that's not how they think of, they think of development, um, uh, unfortunately, or they wouldn't, wouldn't say that, uh, think about the ceremonial law. So if, if you have a proper understanding of development, as I've, as I've laid out, uh, you, you're, you're not really gonna, you're not really gonna fall for that, uh, error when it comes to, uh, the, the thinking about it in terms of the ceremonial law or anything like that. Um, <clears throat> to illustrate my earlier point about uh, the reception of Vincent, um, the Byzantine liturgical life already enshrined Vincent specifically on account of his teaching uh, on this topic at the time of Nicaea too. So there's there's my point. So the the whole like mu development thing is really like. Uh, yeah, I would. I actually, um, uh, in my in my uh, series on development, I'm going to go over uh, some of the patristic and then medieval uh, treatments of this because it's 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 super crazy that the that pop orthodox figures say that the orthodox don't believe in the development of doctrine because you have specific places where the fathers and the medievals explicitly talk about this. This isn't like even something where we just go back like. See the the chapter from Saint Vincent, where he explicitly talks about this, and the the Protestant translators give the chapter head as like the Saint Vincent on the development of doctrine or something. Mm -hmm. So it's it's absolutely crazy that um, that there's going to be this narrative that the the, the Roman Catholics uh, that uh, James White's uh, good old narrative that John uh, John Henry Newman invented. The development of doctrine uh, after Vatican One, which talks about the development of doctrine, in order to cope with uh, with, with the decree on uh, papal infallibility, it, it's like ridiculous narrative, ridiculous narratives like that, which everybody who has ever read anything about the essay on development will know that Newman actually wrote it decades before before he was even Catholic. Um, but besides even that fact, uh, it's just. Uh, 
completely false that nobody before Newman talked about the development of doctrine. They, they've talked about it for over 1500 years at that point, um, explicitly in some, in a lot of places. So uh, it, it was a common, like it was a common locus to talk about in uh, I'm assuming that would be covered in probably De Locis or, or maybe De Revelazione. Um, the, either the the tract on revelation or the tract on theological places where they would talk about uh, the church's interaction with revelation and uh in 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 relation to uh, yeah it, it would be in it would be in de revelation that they would discuss this uh, so it had already been a common like section in their systematic theology textbooks to talk about by the time of newman uh so it, it really is a crazy narrative that, that people are bringing forward about this issue. And it, it, it's easily the most misunderstood uh, doctrine. So, Dende, how are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing Can fantastic. Can you hear me? Yeah. Is there anything else you want to okay. talk about about that, Hassan? Or do you just want to continue to other stuff? Well, this there's a bunch of stuff being asked in the chat. So I don't want to... I don't want to delay uh, too much, and I can't really think of anything that's like substantially important that we discussed about this that hasn't been brought up already. Uh, although, if I went through like Swan's video in a bit more detail, I'll probably have more to say. Someone needs to mute Discord. Is that me or is that you? I have Discord. That's that's me, and I'm not muting it. <laughs> <laughs> Owned. Uh, okay, somebody asked. Somebody had a super chat reminder. Uh, super chats appreciated. Uh, you can reinterpret the prophecies of scripture. Not sure what that's supposed to be in reference to. Um, I think he's just saying that uh, that that's what the Protestants have done here. They've just said. Uh, okay, but we just have to find a different. Uh, we we can look at the empirical reality that the church became idolatrous, and we just have to reinterpret what the prophecies meant. Oh, oh, you're talking about the prophecies from the Old Testament about yeah uh, Christ ridding the church of idolatry. Mm. Uh, that's a cope. Yeah, that is cope, and and you, actually, this is substantial. You were talking about how the Reformed and the Lutherans tried to establish uh, continuity between themselves and the pre-Reformation mm -hmm. church. But then what they have to do is they have to commit themselves to the view that like the church was actually materially idolatrous for hundreds of years. Yeah, I it is. I, I think that's one of the most devastating blows to the sort of reformed Catholic uh, ressourcement that, that has been going on is the fact that they have to dedicate themselves to the idea that all of all of the the, the bishops certainly uh, you could say like oh this individual priest or theologian here or there said otherwise and they do and they're they're actually right about that uh, there are precursors to most of uh what the reform taught uh the precursors that were condemned um but you have to commit yourselves to the fact that all the bishop and laity uh at least in saying the mass were idolatrous but also in most of what they were professing uh were were uh, they, in most of what they were professing, they were heretical, uh, which is which is a very tough uh, pill to swallow um, because you have multiple uh, medieval uh, councils that were represent that were representative 
of the Western Church and the Patriarch of the West. So you're going to you're going to have to have a very weird ecclesiology that they didn't apply to their own groups. They they have to they have to completely uh, change how they apply ecclesial authority in themselves after the Reformation, and then uh, to to the pre-Reformation uh, Church, which uh, at, at that point, if you're just going to completely uh, change some uh, a, 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 an entire loci. Uh, entire locus, sorry, entire locus of um, of theology, uh, just because uh, just because it helps your historical narrative, then you might as well uh, just admit that you have no continuity, um, or have some sort of weird um, uh, transformistic evolutionism uh, with uh, the doctrines that you believe. Mm-hmm. So, just checking, checking all, I'm just starring stuff to, questions to answer. Swan presentation was good. We're, we're Swan fans around here. Okay, so this is a good question. I just wanted to. So uh, John Fisher, he asked, the Old and New Covenants both provided grace, the former provided by promise, in the coming Messiah, the latter is in union with his atonement. Would this be correct? Uh, yeah, it would be correct. We just have to uh, make sure we remember that with the, the instrumentality of the, uh, old, covenant sac- uh, the old covenant sacraments, uh, that they were, they weren't uh, by the, they weren't, one, they weren't by the working uh, of the of the sacrament ex opera operato, uh, and second, uh, they they didn't have the same physical causality uh, as the sacraments of the new covenant had. So yes, it it is uh, upon the upon the condition of of faith in the future. The the best way that I've heard my back thought I cut it out. Sorry, the best way I've heard it explained is this: uh, the Old Testament provided the occasions to be sanctified through the New Covenant, whereas the New Covenant sanctifies of itself. Right? Yes, that so, sounds that is yeah. good. No, nobody has ever received sanctification uh, after the fall except through the New Covenant, uh, and and this was the case even under the the bounds of the Mosaic Law. But the Mosaic, uh, the Mosaic covenants and the teachings of Abraham and so on, uh, all of these things uh, gave us the occasions for uh, for grace. So God devised the best system to raise into to raise man to to gain a disposition uh, towards the reception of grace and to consider concepts which were the occasions for the, uh, the the bestowal of grace extraordinarily, whereas in the sacraments of the new covenant, grace is ordinarily received. Okay, oh, this is a good, quick one to answer. Um, so, what would be, what would you say is the best example of development of doctrine we can point to? Literally anything. <laughs> and so, give me, give me one example of something that differs, ex, uh, even in wording from the from the revealed data, and that is an example of a first degree development. Now, if you want to go to second degree developments, which is what most people mean, uh, the sort of development uh, conceptually uh, occurring. Um, 
if, if you're not specifically talking about dogma, uh, basically any sort of treatment of like any sort of treatment of any doctrine ever of uh, it, it, because if you're, if you're differing uh, either in uh, specifics uh, that is explaining uh, the revealed data. So if I go from the word is uh, made flash to uh, let's say the, the statement that uh, the second person of the Trinity uh, took on human flesh. That is, there's a nominal distinction actually between the two. I'm just defining the terms. And then if I went from uh, that, the that Christ uh, took upon a human nature, which we, we've derived, uh, to that Christ took upon, uh, that, that Christ had human freedom, uh, let's say, uh, because uh, he has humanity, uh, uh, human freedom is contained within humanity, uh, therefore Christ had human freedom. That's, a, that's an example of a second degree development right there, because human freedom is conceptually present uh, in the idea of a human nature. Uh, we just have to draw it forth by a process of, uh, of our reasoning. Um, so again, I, what I'm trying, what I'm trying to, uh, what I'm trying to say uh, is that really the development of doctrine should be one of the least controversial uh, aspects of the, of Catholic teaching. I don't know. I don't know why it's controversial. It should be the, it, it's kind of like divine simplicity. I, I think the same way with divine simplicity, divine simplicity should be one of the least controversial aspects of, of Catholic teaching. It, it really should be. Um, yeah, but that, that's, that's all I'll say. If somebody wants to ask about that, I can, I can talk about that. But I'm kind of just trying to go through and star all of the questions that I thought were good. So sorry if I miss your questions. Uh, if you're a YouTube member or uh, if you throw me a super chat. A lot of weird stuff going on in the chat. Right then now. I will be able to answer your questions. There's just so many. Um, yeah. Okay, so if Nicaea 2 is wrong, does that disprove Catholicism? Yeah. Yeah, of course. If it, if it defined if it defined falsely, or if the actual argument, the rationale, uh, which by which the dogma must be accepted, which which colors what the sense of the dogma is, if the sense of the dogma is wrong, Catholicism is wrong. Like it's it's not possible. So, this is the thing. Um, oh my. <sighs> And, and also, also, I think uh, I think what Hassan is is trying to explain is we have to when, when we say Nicaea two is wrong, we have to ask her. We have to ask ourselves under which aspect. Like, let's say uh, one of the I don't know one of the one of the scribes when they were writing down the documents, they they often have uh, lists of the bishops that signed on. Let's say one of the scribes happened to misspell one of the bishop's names or one of the scribes uh, heard him wrong and wrote a different name or maybe forgot one of the stupid amount of accent marks that are that are present in uh, in Greek. Let, let, let's say let's say that occurred. We would be saying Nicaea 2 was wrong. Yet, I mean, technically, yeah, we would be saying Nicaea 2 is wrong, but obviously uh, it, it's under it's under a, a certain aspect that wouldn't formally contradict that which is defined, which when we say Nicaea 2 is right, we're talking uh, about Nicaea 2 under the formal aspect uh, of the of the definition which is given. So uh, is uh, it really, really what I'm trying to say is uh, really you kind of have to gloss Nicaea 2 as that which is defined uh, at Nicaea 2, because I mean, they're 
there might be mistakes of, of history. There might be uh, mistakes uh, of, of many different kinds, um, just not in that which it uh, defines. Vatican one um, to, to add to that Vatican one explicitly says that the sense in which the dogma was defined must be the accepted sense. You're not allowed to change the sense uh, in which mm -hmm. a dogma was, was defined in order to arrive at a more profound meaning than the one that was originally defined. So, um, so you can, you cannot hold uh, that the veneration of icons is salutary in a way that contradicts the reason why it's salutary that the fathers uh, of, the, of Nicaea II gave. My point earlier about them being wrong about the practice itself going back to the apostles and being transmitted from them is because this is not an argument to demonstrate. Uh, this is not an argument to demonstrate that the veneration of icons is salutary. It was an argument to illustrate their other more core argument that there is no transformation of the deposit. Here. This is only supposed to be an illustration that um, uh, an illustration that rule that for them would say rule they would say rules out the idea that it's a transformistic development. Yeah, and uh, Yuan is asking about whether the that develop that uh, icons are salutary is a doctrine or a dogma. Yeah. Um, if you if you look at and I think I think this is one of the confusing parts about just sticking within the English world on this is people what, what they'll what they'll have. And I talk about this actually in my first episode uh, of my series on the development of doctrine, uh, which it's just free out there. Just go to my playlist and it should be there um, is in the English world. There is this meme. If that's really what it is, it's just a meme. Uh, where people say, well, on the one hand, we have what is called the evolution of dogma. The evolution of dogma is what the modernists believed. And on the other hand, we have the development of doctrine. The development of doctrine is what Catholics believe. This is, this is a very common um, uh, meme that's put out there. I've, I've heard it from multiple people. Um, I don't know if anybody else has heard it or maybe I just attract weird people. Um, but that is utterly false. Uh, really, development of doctrine is the term that was given to it by Newman, and it's the term that's usually used in the English world. Uh, when Newman was writing in, in Latin, uh, when he was writing the, uh, his, his letters to Cardinal Perone, he, he actually called it the evolution of dogma. Because in, in, in Latin, in, uh, in Latin theology, that was the common title which was given to what we know as the development of doctrine. It was called the evolution of dogma. And, um, and that's what uh, Sola in his work called it uh, the homogeneous evolution of Catholic dogma. Um, and that's just what Latins everywhere uh, call it, uh, evolution of dogma. Uh, really, the difference is between, on the one hand, homogeneous evolution, which means that evolution in the same sense, increasing an understanding that Vatican I talks about, and on the other hand, you have transformistic evolution. That's what the modernists believed in. The modernists thought that you could go from one sense to a different sense. They thought there was a certain time when we, uh, when the uh, the faith of the certain believer was just inflamed by the the idea of the Trinity or the incarnation, uh, 
But now we know that uh, don't don't like record this, take this out of context. This is what the modernists were saying. But now, since we have this new profound uh, sort of sense of uh, the what's called the religious sense, the sort of interior intrinsic feeling uh, about the uh, about the faith, we're now able to know that the Trinity that was actually just uh, just a sort of primitive uh, understanding about a certain aspect of God in, uh, in I don't even know what crap they uh, they they describe it as but that's what they'll say they'll say this was a certain this was a certain symbol of of the of the religious faith of uh, religious feeling religious sense of a certain time of of people and then now we've actually uh, developed beyond that so we know while they believe this on the one hand we know from our uh, new profound religious sense that we are that we get to move on uh, to this to this next uh, stage, so that's the difference. Now, for those who accuse Newman of modernism, those who accuse anybody who believes in the development of doctrine as as modernistic, is that what we're saying? Of course not. That's insane. We don't. We don't. We have the only thing we have in common with with transformistic evolution is the name evolution. That's the only thing we have in common. The, the, the modernist doctrine is is utterly absurd, and nobody believes – well, we don't believe in it. No, nobody who is a generally orthodox Catholic would ever uh, describe uh, development of doctrine in that way. I, I can't even think of anybody alive today that believes something like this uh, since the, that sort of modernism has, has kind of just completely faded uh, into the into the background. So, so yeah, that, that's just a sort of um, – the, the the sort of historical background to to all of the terms that are used in this debate. Okay, so if the Catholic Church canonizes a saint who was arguably an Arian or a Universalist, would that disprove the infallible judgment of the Church? Well, so there's there's a bit of debate. Uh, there's there's two points of debate uh, within. Um, within Catholic schools on canonization. The first one is whether canonizations are infallible or not. And I think I'm sure both Hassan and I uh, agree, obviously, uh, yes, because it's based upon um, the indefectibility of the worship of the church, because otherwise the, the church would be binding people to, to uh, venerate somebody who is actually in hell, which obviously would be a huge problem. And uh, Pius XI explicitly invoked his infallible authority while canonizing once. So. Really? I, I didn't know that. So, so yeah. Uh, on, on the one hand, uh, there's that debate. So, uh, it, for those who agree otherwise, obviously this question uh, is, is not a uh, – is a completely different uh, – going to have a completely different answer. And on the second hand, what is the proper object of the church's infa uh, exercised infallibility? So is it what is what is the church saying when she says that this person is canonized? And this this debate isn't actually brought up that much uh, amongst uh, the theologians who write about this. Uh, you, if you read the Catholic uh, the Catholic Encyclopedia article on canonizations, uh, the the guy who wrote it was was a theologian who dealt with this, and he said he actually had never uh, even seen it treated. So. Obviously, uh, this is getting into a bit of uh, shaky territory, but I think if you read the decree of canonization, what is being uh, what is being uh, decreed is that 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 this person is in heaven. 
I think that is the proper object of the of the church's exercise of infallibility, whether they were um, completely orthodox in all of their private beliefs. That is that is uh, only accidentally connected uh, to the issue of whether they're in heaven or not, because we do believe that somebody could uh, somebody who is an Aryan or a universalist um, who are inculpable in that error. Uh, could be in heaven, so they could be canonized. Um, so no, this wouldn't go against the uh, the church's teaching on infallibility. You should have a glossary of terms on your screen in your whole video. Ott says it's a common common sentence. Okay, I'm going to go to all of the questions I starred. Is that a Persian rug? So somebody's been asking me about my rug. So my my brother-in-law, he's over in the Middle East in an unidentified place. Um, and there was somebody who were who were selling uh, these these prayer rugs. And he thought that I would think it was cool. So he bought me one and sent it over. So this is a uh, Mohammedan prayer rug right here. It just looks cool, so I hung it up on my wall. Dude, the <laughs> gigatrads are going to be flipping out now that I'm actually, like, have idolatrous objects. In yeah. Bro, they they they, they uh, predicted that you would go Muslim in, like, a year, bro. Dude, they did. Dude. They actually did. People were telling me that I was going to go Muslim. So stupid. Yeah, but it's like... It's just a cool thing, you know. It's not like it's like a, like an idol of Buddha or something. Are you? There's you don't nothing... have to take it. You, you don't have to take the like the criticism seriously. It's a troll. Like... No, no, people, people. No, I, I, people are actually going to say this, so I need to like justify the fact that I have a prayer rug in my room because I, I actually don't know about this, Hassan. But do do Christians in uh, the Middle East do they uh, use prayer rugs in no. their worship? They don't. No, because uh, because pretty much everybody has removed the prostrations from the way that they do the divine office. There are a, there are a lot of scholars who say that there were prostrations in it originally. Um, they were probably removed because of like old or sick people or whatever, so that everybody could could participate in the ceremonial equally. Um, but like you know, like a lot of very old churches were like carpeted for example because people used to prostrate and because people would sit down on the carpet and so on um it's not like in the west where the floors are like wooden or stone or something right or just oh, yeah. wood or stone um i mean it's just it's just not um it, it's it wasn't necessary to have prayer rugs and prayer rugs are quite a late innovation in islam anyway um so really just, i didn't know that yeah. So e either way, it it isn't a, a prayer rug. Isn't something which is intrinsically and formally connected with idolatry. It isn't. So you guys can what? chill. That's just stupid. Anyway, you can, you can chill because it's yeah. like uh, actually, um, I actually wouldn't have a huge problem if like I don't know there was some sort of like Muslim ordinariate. I, I don't even know how to describe it. And they, bro, they, like, what? <laughs> no, bro, no. like, I have to explain myself. I don't no, no, want to say anything. Okay, okay, stop, I haven't, I haven't stop, ex, no, no, stop, I haven't. Stop. I'm, I'm gonna mute you. <laughs> I haven't. I haven't explained myself sufficiently. 
So there, there would not be anything formally wrong with it. It, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be anything which is formally uh, inappropriate. You mean like a set of like enculturated practices for no, if, like former Muslims or something? Yeah, if if they if they came out with some sort of like uh, liturgical uh, liturgical book or, or something that would that would appropriately bring in the elements of um, of of natural uh, the the appropriate aspects of muhammadan worship that isn't formally idolatrous what are you talking about that none of it's applicable because they don't have a mass they don't have no, anything no, no, no. like like uh I, I don't know i'm sure i'm sure there's like certain prayers that could be incorporated into um into like a daily prayer uh sort of thing yeah sure you yeah could, sure like that, that's what that's what i meant not like a mass add, like why would they have a add, why would they have a muhammadan mass what are you yeah, talking you could about add, like extra like non-obligatory bits into the way that the divine office is done or something that would probably be the best that like the, yeah the like there, there wouldn't be there wouldn't be anything because i mean if, if it is express expressing some sort of aspect of truth the, the the catholic church should be able to to use it in their worship and i mean if people have a problem with that look at look at plenty of the aspects of uh, of our current uh, worship and its relationship to pagan ceremonies and even protestant writers uh, classical protestant writers uh anglicans specifically fault the puritans on this issue so this isn't even yeah. something that's like distinctively catholic this is just we, distinctively people with a brain uh, what they, what they think about this you know you know our, fr our friend timothy wilson the curious thomist guy runs the blog lumen scholasticum uh uh uh, which is really good, and he his Twitter is like Alafridus O or something, right? He he does a lot of he he does a ton of like translation of uh, post Tridentine Latin sources, right? Yeah, they're really good, and a lot there are a lot of books written about how Christians have always incorporated uh, or been inspired by bits of non Christian worship, and uh, some of them even go into various theories that were quite common in uh, in the past about. Moses, for example, drawing upon Egyptian rites in um, in the inspired uh, the inspired rituals of the uh, of the Torah, for example. Yeah, this is this is okay, guys. This is centuries before Vatican II, so this isn't Vatican II nonsense. We promise. This is it's the same with everything. It's like oh, development of doctrine is this eighteen hundreds thing. Oh, uh, the Vatican II view of extra ecclesia nulla salus is this this post Vatican II thing or whatever, and then. Everybody saying this has no idea what people were saying after Trent for hundreds of years. It's really yeah. Weird. I I, th I think I, I really like the translation of something like De Revelatione, which I have volume one right here. Beast, beast of a book. This is volume one, uh, because like you you read a lot of these older sources are untranslated. They're inaccessible um, to even a lot of a lot of scholars, unfortunately. But when when you read a lot of, you're gonna be very shocked when you read read a lot of stuff in here about Lagrange describing extra ecclesium nullisalus. Lagrange describing um, like uh, how how a Muslim should approach the Catholic faith and um, mm -hmm. and conversion, or even things like the uh, the state's uh, the state's obligation to receive revelation. Uh, you're you're going to be pretty shocked uh, by why how read, how. Why don't you read out the thing he said about Muslim seeking uh, conversion? Oh, I, I don't even. I think that's volume two. Yeah, because he actually he actually says, uh, if I remember correctly, that um, until they have motives for credibility in the core articles of faith, they shouldn't just convert. Uh, and and also like um, we were discussing, although we got cut off at some point, we were discussing yesterday about how um, 
somebody somebody needs to uh, like ideally someone cannot simply supernaturally assent to the essence of faith which is in hebrews 11 6 that you believe that god exists and that he rewards those who seek him with union with himself you can't simply believe that by supernatural assent to be baptized you have to believe in some the core articles of faith in order to be baptized you have to have supernatural assent um, not just modally supernatural ascent, but you have to have an essentially uh, essentially supernatural mode of ascent to the incarnation and the Trinity to be uh, to be like for as a moral necessity for your baptism. Um, yeah, there were there was something there was something else really interesting he said. Um, what what was it? Uh, I I sent it to you about like about like in the in the conversion process of of like speaking to uh muslims about like encouraging encouraging them to to continue in their in their like uh, islamic liturgical right uh, ordering it towards god as he is naturally known mm -hmm. yeah there there was something there was something about that that i sent to you but it's like yeah because, like i i told you two stories right about um how sometimes people will come to me and be like oh can you talk to my muslim friend i talked to the muslim friend for like three hours and then they go talk to the Catholic person. The Catholic person would come back spamming me and then spam calling me and be like, why did you tell him to pray more? Why did you tell him to do this? Why did you tell him to do that? Why didn't you just like insult Muhammad because of and stuff like that? Why, why, did you, why did you do something like that? And I was just like, because because the guy is considering Catholicism for bad reasons. He should pray more so that he's motivated by desiring closeness to God on his terms. Not because... Oh, I have this particular intellectual quandary or moral problem. No, shut up. That's that's not the, that's not the reason why you should be interested. This is not good. Uh, and then it happens. It's happened multiple times. And you know, like like you said, Lagrange says, tell them to to order worship towards their their existing worship towards God according to how He is naturally known better. And if somebody genuinely seeks God, like God will give them faith. Even if it's the really implicit faith. Okay, this is this is kind of connected. So this is um, uh, concerning the grave obligation to investigate in divine revelation when there already is at hand a serious probability that it exists. He mm. says, when one is in doubt concerning the means that are necessary for salvation, so this would be people inquiring into the faith, uh, whether Protestant, Muslim, uh, really any, the safer path, safer path must be taken. There cannot be too much security when eternity is at risk. Now, the Christian faith is proposed as being the means necessary for salvation, for it is said that he who does not believe will be condemned, and without faith it is impossible to please God. Therefore, so long as doubt or probability remains concerning the divine origin of this faith, the safer path must be taken. In other words, it is necessary that under the pain of mortal sin, one must inquire further and also pray to the decree that one knows of the fittingness of prayer. To deliberate, uh, deliberately and obstinately neglect such a means is utterly brash, since one would thus incur peril of eternal damnation. As Billuart wrote, in such doubt, the non-believer is bound under pain of mortal sin to diligently inquire into the truth, for otherwise his ignorance of the true faith will be voluntary and culpable for him. No doubt many heretics find themselves in this condition, especially those who live amongst Catholics. Notice he didn't say all heretics find themselves in this condition. Uh, hence, the following proposition has been condemned. An infidel who does not believe will be ex excused of infidelity since he is guided by a less probable opinion.
So basically saying the uh, for, for somebody who is inquiring into the Catholic faith, uh, uh, really, really, you need to you need to push them towards a consideration of the motives of credibility um, rather rather than uh, demanding them to just like uh, to just kind of have this sort of sudden uh, change uh, in disposition. It's really, really interesting uh, thinking about a lot of a lot of these issues. Definitely one of my one of my favorite books. There, there's something else that was like pretty shocking uh, about natural religion. But yeah, like all all of the weird stuff that we that we see in like the the weird uh, post Vatican II church, like actually like Dominus Jesus and like all of that, uh, all of the writings on um, the salvation of those outside the church and the, and the obligations of natural religion and false religions. Um, all, all of that, that seems weird to us actually, like if Gary Gould Lagrange could be, uh, if we could send these documents back to him and he read them, he would probably be like, yeah, this is, this is right. And that, that's, that's really weird because of, uh, most most people will give you a completely different uh, view of ecclesiastical history, and I think it has to do with people more concerned over what is materially expressed uh, by certain uh, by certain words, and in kind of the the general sort of feeling they give to those that aren't trained in principles, versus connecting uh, what is said by the church to first principles and then applying those principles. Uh, to to multiple different situations at hand, I, I I think that I think that's the core issue, and that that sounds very general, but um, yeah, that that's my that's my thesis. Yeah, and this is before Vatican II, and it's very clear. Um, and uh, Lagrange is simply synthesizing to mystic commentators who've come before him, uh, and he's not. In many ways, he's not really saying things that are totally new. That's why he's not being bombastic about it, because these are not new conclusions. So does Catholicism have a concept of jurisprudence? No. Oh, my goodness. Thick. Imagine. Thick. Catholic jurisprudence is not the same thing as canon law. That's wrong. Thick. What is thick? Thick means basically... Hey, like, bro, you're not allowed to say that on stream, man. Thick means <laughs> it means it means looking at um it, it means looking at uh moral law divine law and uh civil law custom and so on as law and mediating cases through the interactions of the law with conscience which is exactly what casuistry is and we do that too Persian carpet and leopard blanket. I did notice that Hassan. I like the leopard blanket. <laughs> it's I, I. This has been in my family since I was like a small kid, and it's one of the most comfortable blankets I've ever seen. It's it's so good. Christian needs to take one the I have an even more comfy one somewhere, but I don't know where it is. Dude, I I wish we could. I wish we could uh, uh, prostrate before the Eucharist. I kind of. I kind of. Uh, Kind of regret, uh, oh, not regret. I kind, of, I kind of hate the fact that that would be seen as weird. Uh, 
also, yes, I, I am balding. I, I have had uh, some kind of problem with like a lot of stress because of the, because of a long-term health problem uh, that affects the rest of my life for since I was a kid. But the balding started when I was like 20. So it's Dang. pretty Rip. bad. Rip yeah. this on. So do you think this defense of victims of human sacrifice is a good defense uh, for the Spanish conquest of the Aztec Empire? Of course, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually, actually here's the thing. Um, in the uh, the Valladolid debates about um, uh, whether or not there was such a thing as more noble and less noble peoples, whether or not Indians, the the what the Indians of of the Americas were like Aristotelian slaves, or whether or not they were subrational, whatever. The position that was agreed upon was that there was a malleable hierarchy of peoples based upon nobility, which has to do with the developments of custom and other things, right? And uh, and basically, um, one of the the important things here is that they discussed how this factors into the just war principle, right? And one one of the the, the very common opinions was things like. Um, if there, if like blasphemy against the Christian religion is very, very common in another nation, that is enough to justify its being conquered. So true. Um, and and also um, and also things like um, uh, like severe violations of the natural law should motivate uh, the the Christian world to to basically put a stop to it. Like we actually do have a vested interest because of the temporal solicitude of the church for human beings in preventing severe violations of the natural law in other nations. We don't have this kind of like weird uh, isolationist insularity that a lot of people believe in, in, in like political morality. Okay. I just want to bring this up quick. I want to learn Latin so I can read our fathers and doctors in the original language. Uh, really, it's more, it's probably more so you can actually uh, read them at all, because a lot of them don't have even options in uh, the English language. Can you give me the best sources and any tips you recommend me to do? I know about the resources for Greek. I uh, kind of for for Latin. Um, I've I've been I probably took my first Latin class like two years ago, so I've been working through Latin for for the last two years. Um, what I obviously obviously everybody. This this should be a no brainer, but for for your textbook, obviously lingua latina. That that shouldn't even be a question. <clears throat> um, and uh, definitely look up uh, Scorpio. Uh, I don't remember his name. Is Scorpio Mar? Um, crap, what is his name? Scorpio Martianus. Okay, there you go. Scorpio Martianus. Uh, he has he has some really good uh, videos to check out um, going through Lingua Latina. Uh, he reads it uh, for you. And he has this really good video. Uh, it's called, let me see. Uh, and this is kind of the plan I follow when I read through Lingua Latina. Uh, how to use extensive reading and audiobooks to become fluent, seven steps. So this is really, really important. Uh, a lot of reading the same stuff is gonna gain you some sort of uh, familiarity with a, with a certain language. So yeah, that that's that. If you if you have no money, uh, basically get Lingua Latina and uh, kind of follow uh, Scorpio Martianus's uh, 
method. But when it comes to uh, like classes and stuff, uh, Ancient Language Institute, that's actually where I take my Latin classes at. A lot of spoken Latin uh, that we engage in uh, going and then we go through uh, Lingua Latina. Very, very, very helpful um, because uh, and they're they're really more focused towards uh, classical sources than they are ecclesiastical sources. And that's why we use uh, classical pronunciation. Um, but yeah, e either way, it's it's gonna it's gonna work uh, about just the same. Um, it's actually probably going to be like your. Um, I heard I heard somebody describe uh, going through Lingua Latina and then reading Thomas as like, ha as uh, what, how did he describe it? It's like setting setting a ninja on a twelve year old. <laughs> it's like that's the, uh, because because really uh, Thomas's Latin is just the, the Latin of the Scholastics is very simple, very easy, and uh, a lot of the Renaissance guys like turn their noses up at them. But either way, it's. Uh, um, it, it's gonna it's gonna be extremely helpful um, and if you just put work into it but either way the last thing to remember I always remind people of this no matter what the best Latin program is going to be the Latin program that you actually do fighting about the 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 best whether whether father mosts is better uh, whether, whether lingua latina is better, whether it's better to do this or that or, or whatever, uh, natural method, grammatical. But no matter what, you, you could have the crappiest Latin textbook in the world. If you actually care, you're going you're gonna to be able to learn the language. Yeah, it's going to take extra work, but you're going to be able to learn the language. Uh, you just have to care. That, that, that's really the biggest uh, the biggest. Uh, element to success really in anything uh is, is to just care and to uh just kind of put your head down and pursue the goal and keep going until you actually uh reach it but if you go to the link below fluentgreeknt.com if you do want to learn greek best greek tool is fluent greek um they are a sponsor of the show so i i love them for that but they do uh, have a really interesting mix of and I'm going to pull it up real quick. They do have a really interesting mix of uh, grammatical and uh, sort of natural method, where they, from the text of the New Testament, will will kind of work you up by showing you verses that have the same grammatical <coughs> verbal form, because there's these uh, you you learn about there's there's kind of like case system to Greek. So the, the verbs are uh, different based on their endings. So they kind of group them together uh, from easiest to hardest and then uh, continue to expose you to a lot of just reading. And you begin on the easy end and you just keep, uh, keep going through. So by the end, you will have read uh, all, every sentence of the New Testament uh, and, and you will have been exposed to uh, them grouped uh, from easiest to hardest. Um, and then also group together based on the verb form so you can work on that. And it also obviously uh, build up your, your vocabulary uh, as well. So definitely check that out. Uh, make sure you use the code militant. I think it's 20% off. So it's like 12 bucks a month. You get a two week free trial. I mean, why not? Uh, 12 bucks a month is, is insanely cheap for any language learning source because language learning is 
a business with a lot of money and uh, very little success, unfortunately. So uh, definitely check out Fluent Greek um, and use that code. Uh, so yeah, that's all. Any uh, any Latin or language learning uh, recommendations in general, Hassan? Um, Dende, I think you too are a uh, I think you two are a, a language guy too. No, what? What are you talking about, bro? I do Italian. That's that's your definition of a language guy. I took like three years of that class and I forgot everything in like a year. <laughs> Come on, bro. Okay, uh, Hassan, I guess. Come on, Dende, you're disappointed. Uh, so I most of my my learning is kind of just jumping in and do and practicing with texts. So like mostly with Latin. Uh, because it doesn't work that way for Arabic at all. I'm, I'm trying to study Arabic properly at the moment, and you just can't do that because of the, the way that it's written. Uh, but but in Latin, um, the best thing that you can do is once you have enough grasp to, but with a lot of effort, start reading a few pages of Latin, comparing it to an English translation that's like, you know, that you can be sure of afterwards. And, um, and like, basically use things like the Logion, uh, I'll put the name of that in the chat, uh, resource, using resources like that, or using like uh, declension tables and stuff like that. Uh, that will help you uh, to, to like practice, but you should, you should use like a lot of like natural method stuff as well, like most or lingua latina or Eche Romani. You should do natural learning stuff to get you up to the point where you start practicing by reading texts. Uh, one of the things that will help you a lot is like um, when you meditate on the text of prayers, uh, which I hope you're all doing, when you meditate on the text of prayers, uh, doing them in Latin will reveal a new depth to the meaning of the prayer because often the grammar of the prayer in Latin uh, teaches you things about the prayer and its matter of contemplation that you wouldn't have noticed if you just did it in English which is one of the reasons why it's good to pray in Latin, because it's a very precise language and it tells you a lot more about what it means. Uh, that's that's why I love um, going to choral masses where you they'll, they'll spend like <laughs> a minute on, on like maybe 15 to 20 words and you can just kind of kind of chill there and uh, yeah. as as they're chanting, uh, which the, the chanting itself is expressing in a different form uh, in, in a certain sense, the meaning of the terms and you're able to, to more easily be brought into contemplation. And this is actually what St. Thomas says when he talks about the appropriateness of, of vocal singing, when it comes to uh, when it comes to the liturgy versus the inappropriateness of instruments uh, in the liturgy. Not, but not when you chant so long on one syllable that it's unintelligible and it's not a common prayer that everybody knows so that you would, you, you don't need to yeah but now i mean now we have now we have books so i mean i just sometimes yeah sure but sometimes as uh the way something is chanted is so unintelligible that you 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 look at your book and you have no idea where they are it's impossible even if well, you're... I, I i follow my book along i'm i'm a, I'm a, yeah, I'm a good yeah. i'm, I'm a good mass attender it, so. it works it works if it's so if it's something like psalm 51 in and like the the polyphony of the miserere in in the um where it's used in the um, uh, in the tenebrae, right? That's fine. That's completely fine because 
because that's a prayer that everybody should know. And so you can meditate on the way that the meaning of the psalm as a whole is expressed through the way the music is constructed, which is, I think, what you meant by the way that chant adds another layer to prayer, right? Mm. Because this is something that is actually talked about in the Fathers from very early on. St. Jerome, St. Augustine, and then much later, St. Teresa of Avila and some other people, they talk about this concept called jubilus. Now, jubilus is, is like basically the sense of prayer in tongues, which is our not weird version of what the, charisma the charismatics do. So jubilus is a certain natural effect of kind of like expressing the emotions that flow from prayer in prayer through the way that you, you sing, uh, whatever is sort of pre-verbal, which is present in the singing of the words. And sometimes there's something pre-verbal when you just sing a note that has no words in it, but it's an expression of a certain spiritual affection. Um, these, this is a sort of natural overflow of the effects of the theological virtues. And it's possible for people to sing that way, of course, even if they don't have the theological virtues. But, um, but when it flows from the spiritual affections that are developed in the soul as an, as an effect in the nature of the supernatural virtues that you have, this is what is called jubilus. When, when you're chanting and the way in which you're chanting is an expression of your grief or your joy or your hope or your love, here, hope and love, uh, by hope and love, I mean the two affections of hope and love, not the theological virtues. Uh, then this chant expresses something about the meaning of the text to you and in you and from you. And, uh, and this, is very, this is very important. Gregory the Great also talks about this in Moralia and Job. But um, the, the, this concept is, is very important. And this is the basis of that saying, which I don't know exactly where it comes from or if it's authentic, but the saying that he who sings prays twice. Um, the reason that, that this is important is because there is an aspect of your prayer that is verbal and there's an aspect of your prayer that is a pre-verbal, non-verbal vocal expression of what is going on in the interior. Uh, and and this, is, this is very important. This is why people should chant the rosary and things like that when they have time, at least inside their heads, uh, because there's there's another dimension of the prayer that, that's missing otherwise. And Christian has disappeared for a bit, I think. What's up, guys? Yeah, what's up? What's up? Let's go. Chilling. Uh, how are you all today? How's it going? May as well answer oh. a couple of questions people asked me. Did you, were you talking to me? Yeah, yeah, I was asking everyone in general. I'm doing fine, man. I'm doing fine. I've just been up here and like talking to Christian Elliot. Oh, Bro, I, I woke up right as uh, the stream started, so I was like, oh, I'll just get on this time bro 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 what very weird did you did you wash up did you wash up or did you jump straight in bro i i just i just woke up like bro like you woke up after the thing. Oh, dude. dude i'm still in like my i'm still in like the clothes that i slept in yeah. oh no 
smelly I'm get, I'll, bro i'll get shower dressed after i'll go and uh, dude bro i didn't even have anything to eat so i just opened a bag of chips and started eating man man bro. brushes his teeth after he eats american moment yeah what why would you brush your teeth before Wait, you what? eat? That's like counterproductive. What? Yeah, yeah. What? Dentists, dentists are gonna say that like, uh, so so in your mouth, there's a lot of uh, like toxins from the bacteria overnight, and you should get rid of that before you eat anything. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'm I'm gonna believe the dentist. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Okay, well, here's, here's My the, personal interpretation here's, is different than your personal interpretation. Here's bro. here's the problem with that, right? Here's the problem with that. I brush my teeth with mint tooth, uh, with mint toothpaste. Mm -hmm. Then I go and have my orange juice, and it tastes awful. Okay, mm -hmm. I don't care, bro. I don't care. Could you, yeah, you, when, when you when you uh, like wait and like pray before you have breakfast, then it will be fine. Some, I mean, sometimes you sometimes you just don't have time. Like when I was in school, I had like thirty minutes to like get on the bus. Drink milk instead, then. Milk to bro, real no, drink milk. milk instead of the orange juice is what I'm saying. Yeah, I know. I said toothpaste milk. That's that's just even worse. When you wash your mouth properly after you brush your teeth, then huh? Okay, did you guys? Did you guys already answer this question? <laughs> no, we were waiting for you. We we're waiting for me. Uh, I want. I actually wanted to see your take on a question somebody asked. Uh, somebody said, uh, "Well, this guy, this guy is a super chatter, so we kind of have to." Oh answer yeah, 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 yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I forgot about that, dude. Twenty dollars about blood? Seriously? No, it's it's twenty S A R. That's what Saudi money. So it's five dollars. Bro, that's Saudi money. Yikes. <laughs> bro, bro we getting that. We getting that oil. We getting that oil money, bro. Bro, <laughs> relative <laughs> I'm imagining Lord Yamcha is either like an, an like a quiet secret Arab convert, or he's one of those like awful Filipino guys scuttling around doing like butler work for Saudis or something. Bro, bro, we're getting bro. You have the prayer rug, and you're getting funded by the Saudis, bro. It's <laughs> happening. It's, it's done. done. It's bro. Um, it's over. Secrets out, guys. Real. Yeah. So uh, with. Oh man! Somebody put gave me twenty pounds. Uh, he, he says he's Saudi. He's not one of the Filipino workers. He just, wanted to just, just all right. Let's answer his question. Somebody gave me question. twenty pounds. Dang, dang, bro! I'm, I'm getting pounds and Arab money. Um, okay, so how would I specifically talk about this? So with the prohibition uh, from consuming blood, uh, that that specifically uh, is in reference uh, to the fact that the life of the animal is found in the blood. Uh, so, so we have to consider under under which aspect is this is this prohibited? Is it prohibited um, in 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 the sense? It, is it prohibited under under the aspect of something which is just gross? Is it prohibited for some deeper theological reason? Why is it prohibited? Well, the direct reason is because of the life of the animals in the blood. We don't have the we don't have the right uh, to consume consume the life of the animal. When when God when God specifically gave us uh, the the explicit right uh, in um, especially in the Noahic covenant of being able to consume animals for our use, that was something which was left off uh, 
from us is being able to consume their life in a, in a sort of total sense. And I think in, in this, this obviously, uh, obviously, very obviously points forward to us consuming the, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ is we are able to consume the life of Christ. We're able to become partakers of, 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 of the lifeblood of the God man and in, in ourselves uh, through participating um, through, through a participation uh, in, in Christ's very life, we are able to participate um, in his grace Moses as, as our covenant, as our covenant head. So I, and, and even then, uh, I think I think everybody actually has a problem uh, has problems with having to explain this because you're telling me, okay, so so Catholics because we believe it's substantially blood, uh, we we get in trouble, but Protestants they believe it symbolizes blood, so they're okay. Okay, so so you're telling me we can't do an evil act, but we can symbolize an evil act if you're if it's your position that it's going to be essentially evil to consume that which is substantially blood. So. I, I don't really get why this is some sort of a major sticking point. Uh, some some other uh, thinker by the name of uh, uh, not thinker. He's he's a YouTuber, so he doesn't think. <laughs> okay, uh, what what is his name? Uh, some Protestant guy. That that was his huge argument. Is like the, the, the Jewishness of the first century Christians would not allow for them to uh, consume literal blood. Uh, they obviously thought it was symbolic. Well, it's like. If you're telling me that they're just totally okay with doing something sim uh, that they viewed as evil symbolically, but they're not okay with doing it, uh, really. Yeah, okay, dude. I, I get it now. It's an important thing to note as well that, like, the the Eucharistic wine is not more blood than the Eucharistic bread is, right? Like, they're both equally blood and body. They're both bone and marrow and, and whatever, because all the parts of Christ are present since it's the whole Christ. And since we even receive the accidents by concomitance, what, what you're receiving when you receive Christ is, is a reality under a sign, meaning a reality under a symbol. Now the bread and the wine point to the same substance and not even point to different parts. But when we receive, when we, when we refer to the Eucharistic wine as the Eucharistic blood, when we receive to the Eucharistic bread as the Eucharistic body, we're talking about different aspects signified by Christ's blood and by Christ's body, by which he is providentially condescended to us. So, for example, when you um, and, and this is this is in a lot of theologians, you can find this, I think, in St. Um, uh, St. Albert the Great's uh, writings on the Eucharist. Uh, you can see that, like, um, the important thing to consider is that the bread principally signifies the the goodness of the incarnation and the gift of the incarnation uh, and the blood signifies what was invisible within the body which was shed by us for our sake so uh so what you have to consider is like for example in the, in in exodus when the hebrews uh, uh have the first passover they have to eat the meat with the bread with bitter herbs now the bitter herbs are there to recall the penance which is due for their sins in Egypt because of the scandal of the, the Egyptians leading them into idolatry and other sins. And the, the meat represented, because they had to eat the whole animal, this referred to the necessity of them having to give their faith to God as their shemati, that you have to love the Lord your God with your whole existence. 
and the the bread signifies the acceptance of god's providence okay like the bread and the quail that's that's given by by god to the the hebrews in the wilderness so in the eucharist of course the bread and the and the meat are assimilated to one another but the bitter herb as a sign remains we've been given two species of the eucharist for two reasons first because the the pouring out of the blood signifies everything that we should feel on account of our sins which is joy for their being redeemed uh, uh for us being redeemed despite them uh, and from them and also uh the grief that we should feel on account of having separated ourselves from god by them and what we have done to our lord on the cross by our sins um you also have to consider the other aspect of why we have two species which is that an animal sacrifice necessarily involves what in the old testament the separation of blood from a body the removal of the life from a thing and um when christ says this blood will be poured out for you he's talking about an animal sacrifice he's talking about the separation of blood from a body now on the cross there was a real separation of blood from body but in the eucharistic sacrament there is only a symbolic separation of blood from body because one uh which we call the blood and one which we call the body the two species are separated from one another um there's a really good very brief book that you guys can read from our friend uh, Eric Ibarra who wrote a book on um like the Melchizedekian typology in the Eucharist and this talks about the um uh this talks about how this talks about the relationship between um between like uh the animal sacrifice where you sever the jugular vein of an animal to cause its blood to all be removed from the animal and um and the eucharistic sacrifice where the in the consecration uh you have uh you have the body and then you have the blood poured out from the body uh but these are in sign because in reality the whole christ is present under both we don't actually slaughter christ obviously and this is the important the important difference so um so when we're talking about the when we're talking about the blood there is a certain sense in which the eucharistic blood is symbolic of christ's actual blood but also the reality because the accidents of wine don't mean that somehow we are drinking blood in one case and eating body in the other case this is wrong you you're Christ, uh whichever set of accidents you're receiving the whole christ under Uh, Christian, I wanted to ask you about yeah, one of I the cut out one second. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just wanted to answer uh, this question. He wanted to. He says everybody should watch the video "Important Message to Catholics," and is asking for my top books on mental prayer. So I was just looking up the the links for this. So uh, the first one's an easy method of mental prayer uh, by Father Wilberforce. This is actually typeset by the Dominicans of Avier. Sort of real. I still don't know how to pronounce it. Um, and then the second one is Mental Prayer and Modern Life by Father Lehner. Just trying to find the links for everything. 
Uh, yeah, whatever. I'll just send the Amazon link. You can find the the actual link. Sorry. Somebody typeset it or something. And then the third one is uh, Short Method of Mental Prayer by Father Rodolfi. And I think Tan Books also has a few ones that they've reprinted on this issue. Christian. Yeah. Christian, put, put them in my Discord DMs. Put all three of them in there. Why? Just put them there because I'm not. Yeah, I'm going to. I'll probably buy one or two, but I just wanted to take a look. I don't. Uh, I have like one book on this subject, so I need like more. Okay. I have one. I'll I'll send them I'll send them later. Uh, actually, I'll just send you the Dominican Tertiary reading list because that's where okay. I basically get all my books from. Um, at least spiritual books. Okay, so man, dang, dude! If you guys keep sending me super chats, I'm not gonna be able to leave ever. Uh, why does Thomism heavily rely on Aristotle, and why do church fathers think Plato? Uh, secretly read the Old Testament, and is it true Christ saved Plato from Hades? Okay, a lot of questions. So the the first one, why does Thomism uh, heavily rely on Aristotle? Well, it's because Aristotle was right. the The fact that it was Aristotle, <laughs> <laughs> the fact that it was Aristotle is yeah, that, it's completely a uh, material. It could be like, oh, gosh, I was going to use him as an example. I can't. Uh, what's an example of a really bad man that won't get me? It could be like Joseph Stalin. If Joseph Stalin said something right, then yeah. You know what? You know what other 20th century dictator? The second of it. The yeah. Stop, 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 stop. <laughs> no, I, I was good. Okay, it, I was exemplifying a certain principle that the, the individual <laughs> that that expresses natural truth, like like Hassan. Oh, Hassan exemplifying Hassan a certain principle. His son, you know, he's one of, you know, he's one of my scholars. I just can't, I just can't talk about him. In public. Stop! Stop! <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> you know, You're ruining it for yourself so bad. Yeah, okay, You're making a it bit, a little bit. Okay, but I the the point is, if somebody wants to, uh, read somebody that formally speaking uh was was bad as long as they're not bad in this aspect yeah we can use them i can use isaac newton even though he was an, he was an Aryan. i can use um I'm trying to think of other people that believed dumb stuff i if heck if i if i wanted to be cringe and like somehow argue that the founding fathers weren't that bad i could use them even though they were all deists I, I could use I could use a bunch of people that believed objectively bad things. Uh, people, I I still I still read uh, reformed authors and actually uh, sometimes use arguments they give even though they're heretics. Um, well, that's a, that's a whole other discussion talking about um, heretics, but this is merely on the level of, of natural truth. But the the reliance on Aristotle, uh, what, what's very important to remember about this is that. Grace has a perfect grace does not destroy nature, it perfects nature. So by a certain analogy with natural things. So we can know more about faith, hope, and charity, which are supernatural virtues, if we consider the nature of virtue. So by by analogy with natural things, by consideration of natural things, 
we're actually able to gain a better and more profound understanding of, of spiritual realities. And this is what Vatican I teaches. Vatican I teaches by, by connection with man's end and w- between the dogmas and by analogy with natural things, we're able to gain a more profound understanding of, of the mysteries of the faith that we are to hold to. So that, that's, the, that's really the, the very important essential point in St. Thomas using Aristotle. And uh, uh, with, your, with your last two questions, uh, why, do, why do the church fathers think Plato secretly read the Old Testament? Um, because Plato was right on so many things. He had such – Plato, Plato, spectacular actually. Um, I, I have my, my professor at, at Davenant, I took uh, – he, he has classes on Plato where we read a lot of Plato and discuss Plato. Um, no secondary source uh, stuff. But he thinks he thinks Plato was like a, a quasi um, atheist kind of guy who, who was a bit of a troublemaker in that the, the Catholic Church has been well, – at least Catholic theologians and philosophers have been a bit uh, – haven't been hesitant enough about reading uh, Plato and about the type of language we use about his profundity. But for, at least from my reading of Plato uh, in the, in the canonical reading of Plato in the Catholic church, Plato had a profound, a very profound sense of, uh, I don't even know how to describe it, a, a profound sense of the perfect of what would perfect nature. It's, it's insane. It's insane. Uh, how he was able to discover certain things like um, the, like the beatific vision, um, discover certain very profound realities about the, the nature of God uh, in relation to creation. I think that's actually the, the, the profound insight um, of Plato's forms is recapitulated by St. Thomas in uh, question four of Prima Pars. He brings it back into question 13 where he says uh, whether any name could be applied to God synonymously. St. Thomas's sentence, let me see if I can find it, that uh, the... There you go. I'm going to share my screen real quick. But the, the, the profound insight of Plato is recapitulated by Thomas uh, in, 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 a, in a fantastic way. On, on the issue of of the forms, really. Uh, although I I have pointed out some issues that he had on this, let's bring it up in question thirteen, article two. He says, um, that these names or the names we give of God signify the divine substance and are predicated substantially of God, although they fall short of a full representation of Him, which is proved thus. For the names, for these names express God so far as our intellect knows him. Now, since our intellect knows God from creatures and knows him as far as creatures represent him. Now it is shown above, question four, article two, that God presupposes in himself all the perfections of creatures, being himself simply and universally perfect. Hence, every creature represents him and is like him so far as it possesses some perfection. Yet it represents him not as something of the same species or genus, but as the excelling principle of whose form the effect falls short. Although they derive some kind of likeness thereto, even as the forms of inferior bodies represents the power of the sun. This was explained above, question for article three, in treating divine perfections. And then he has uh, this, this fantastic statement uh, uh, right here. Is this is really St. Thomas's profound insight 
uh, that that sums up uh, what Plato was trying to say. So when we say God is good, the meaning is not God is the cause of goodness or God is not evil. But the meaning is whatever good we attribute to creatures pre-existing God and in a more excellent and higher way. Hence, it does not follow that God is good because he causes goodness, but rather, on the contrary, he causes goodness in things because he is good, according to what Augustine says, because he is good, we are. So this, this, is, this is what Plato was really trying to get at in, in, his, in his philosophy of, of the forms, is that you have this, this, this preexistence of whatever goodness we find in creatures in, in a sort of higher manner. In order to cause uh, in, in cause the lower iterations of that thing, what Plato got wrong is Plato could not distinguish between what's called a pure perfection, that is a perfection that does not give way to imperfection. It's notion things like being, truth, goodness, beauty, intellect, and a mixed perfection. And a mixed perfection is something which uh, which only has some sort of perfection mixed. Uh, in its notion with imperfection. And that would be things like if, if we thought of um, the, the form of man, uh, the form of uh, dog, the form of cup. God, God virtually and eminently uh, contains all of the perfections present in man. Virtually and eminently or, or virtually and eminently contains all the perfections in a book or, or whatever you may speak of. There isn't this form of bookness that formally exists, but only uh, rather it only virtually and eminently uh, exists in God. And this is what this is what Plato's error uh, was. But he had such a profound sense that he was able to he was able to uh, articulate something that that the church took a very long time uh, to be able to to articulate uh, in in a uh, appropriate manner, and it, and it came through uh, with with Saint Thomas uh, talking about divine perfection and uh, its relation to created goodness. So that is that is my love of Plato. And is it true that Christ saved Plato from Hades? I I, I wish uh, I, I I fully I fully expect to see Plato uh, in, in heaven. Uh, let's just put it like that. But obviously, I can't know. Anybody else have any love of Plato to express? No, not really. Not a Plato fan. Sorry. How did you and Hassan and did, did, I'm sorry, dead Denade? I'm laughing because you managed to spell all of their names wrong. Wait, look, well, how did I'm, I'm sorry? Uh, <laughs> Yo, kind of, kind of. Denadi, uh, you are not Denadi. Denadi. Uh, Basarian uh, introduced me to Dende, and then Hassan and I uh, had some interactions on Twitter, and then eventually um, on Discord. Me and Dende actually oh, really? originally had our first like protracted conversation. We talked about this yesterday in relation to a certain individual uh, who was in that server. Oh yeah! Wow. <laughs> 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 Mm. Wait, hold on, hold on. Do we have a private chat? Yeah, we have a private chat. We do. In, Den, in the yards area. Den, Dende accidentally just full on sends it to uh, sends it to the general. So I I saw somebody drop a ten pound um, super chat, but I can't find it. I can find the SAR twenty, and this one's for you, Hassan. Uh, how does the Shia uh, prayer book Al 
Sa Sahifa Sajadia. Sajadia. Stop, stop, Christian, stop. He, he didn't stop. do a bad job. He didn't do a bad job. Sahifa Sajadia. He, he did an okay job. So um, I would say that um, many of the whispered prayers of Imam Sajad are very similar to lots of our prayers in the Psalms and lots of the sort of like little collects that have been written by um, ecclesiastical writers uh, over history on the different Psalms. Um, so, so the Sahifa Sajadiyya, for everybody who doesn't know, uh, it was it, it's sometimes called by Shia the the the, the Zabur, meaning the Psalter of, of Islam, because they call the Psalter a distinct book of revelation. They think David's Psalter is called the they call it the Zabur. I don't know why they call it that, to be honest. Um, but the they basically say that like um, Islam's Psalter, subsequent to the Quran, it, it's not revealed, but it is kind of like guided infallibly in the writings, according to their opinion, of um, Imam Zain al-Abidi, who was the son of Hussein, the one who was murdered, murdered in Karbala by, uh, alongside his family, by uh, the Muslim empire at the time, which not many Christians know, literally like killed Muhammad's grandson, uh, both of his grandsons. That's in the chat. Um, so so um, the, the Muslim empire killed um, Muhammad's grandson um, in Karbala, along with all of his family and his friends, except for some of the women and uh, the, some of the children, and basically like one man. And this one man was Zain al-Abidin, who was sick, so he couldn't fight um, during the Battle of Karbala. And he became like a, a quite a serious spiritual author within the Islamic tradition. And one of the texts that he wrote is a compilation of prayers called the Sahifa al-Sajadiyya. Uh, uh, now, uh, Mama Sajjad, he wrote the um, like a long list of whispered prayers, and these factor into the daily devotional lives of a lot of more religious Muslims, uh, Shia Muslims. Um, and they basically are like prayers of repentance, prayers for consolation, um, uh, and like particular different declarations to God of the presence of different affections in the heart. Um, and they are attempts to elicit different affections within the soul. Uh, I would say that for the most part, the Sahifa Sajjadiyya is, is quite good. Uh, I used to use it a lot. Um, and there are prayers in there that, um, that I still like in, in my mental prayer. They're kind of like, ejaculatory phrases uh that i've taken from a lot of these these uh these things that i used to read i don't think there's any harm in that since they still correspond to the deposit of, of beliefs that we have um and so i i would say that they are largely compatible i would also mention um uh Ziyad, which is a which is a, a much longer prayer taught by the first shia imam muhammad's cousin and son ali ibn Abi talib um, uh, and Dua Kumail basically is like a long prayer of repentance, um, recognizing one's wretchedness, reaching out to God, recognizing that only the primacy of grace can help you, that everything is subsequent to this. Um, and it recognizes that like, even if hell was a present, a pleasant place to be, it wouldn't be pleasant for, uh, for anyone who recognizes that, um, that like 
being with God is the point of beatitude uh, and not like the sort of like uh, fulfillment of, of the nature is not the, the, the only thing alone that we're hoping for in nature, in, in, in heaven. We're not just hoping for, you know, sort of like uh, not feeling tired, not feeling hungry, not feeling sick, not feeling sad. We're, we're hoping for something more than that. But yeah, so this that's that's my answer. I don't I don't think there's any problems with the. Uh, uh, I don't think there's any problem with um, Sahifa Sajadiya. Yeah, and then again, that gets back to the appropriateness of using uh, certain aspects of objectively false religions, um, that where, where where certain prayers or liturgical. Um, activities, I guess you could say, uh, of, of that religion uh, are expressive of natural religion, and therefore can be used and appropriated by the Catholic faith, which is just really the history of, of Christian liturgy. Um, so uh, Charlie Walsh says that he wants to give more money than Lord Yamka. So uh, I, I, I endorse that idea. For everybody to try to give more money than Lord Yamka, I would I wouldn't complain. <laughs> <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't complain. You you cretin! It's Yamcha. It's a Yamcha, bro. It's Yamcha. from Dragon Ball. It's, Dragon it's from Ball. Dragon Ball. Of course, the Saudi. Of course, the Saudi guy has got a Dragon Ball profile picture and name. Of course, he does. Uh, but I've never watched Dragon Ball, bro. I didn't. I didn't watch TV growing up, man. Okay, that's a lie. I did watch a bit of TV growing up, but I was more focused on my studies. I was like, uh, yeah, I was focused on my What's studies, here? not watching Dragon Ball Z. While, while you were watching Dragon Ball Z, I was perfecting my art then day. <laughs> yeah, well, I, it was you know, funner that, to watch you know Dragon that, Ball. You know, so. me, you know that meme, Dende? It's like, while you were talking to girls, I was perfecting the way. Like, You know that one? Yeah, you that's fake. He, you just butchered it. Did yeah. I butchered it? Oh, While well, you were partying, I was studying the blade. Is like oh. the joke. I'm pretty sure. Oh yeah, but the question. Sometimes my mind thinks about other stuff, like what I'm going to do later uh, when I read books like Hillary Book on the Trinity. Oh, when are you talking about when you're reading or when you're uh, when I read books? Uh, I can't. I can't recall whether. Uh, so is this a question about mental prayer or about reading? So if it's about mental prayer, uh, really what you have to do is you have to um, obviously uh, pray that God may free you from distractions and then recall again uh, the type of activity that you're doing, that you are, um, that, that you are really in the presence of, of God and you are uh, mystically communing with him. And I'm using mystically in an improper sense, by the way, so don't come at me. Um, but you, you really you really have this uh, sort of interior uh, communion uh, with God uh, that you are engaging in right now. So uh, once once you recall that, I think it's impossible that you're gonna be like, okay, let me think about other things. Like that would, that would be uh, pretty silly. Um, and then your question, if it's, a, if it's in reference to reading, like what do, you, what do I do when I get distracted when I read? I, I don't really get distracted when I read, so I'm not sure. Uh, you can always just take, like, a breather. You just, like, breathe deeply and slowly. Tends to help for a bit. 
where you like start reading again, you know, if you, if you catch yourself dripping off, that seems to help me. So taking a breather. What, yeah. Yeah. You just breathe a bit deep. Maybe hold your breath for like 10 seconds and then you just breathe deep after that. I'll just hold my breath as long. Uh, do you have a spiritual director? Why or why not? Yes. Do you need a spiritual director? Actually, I guess I think technically I have two. So, double, doubly directed. <laughs> I, I need, trust me, I need the second one. <laughs> I'm twice as bad. That's why. I need, I need twice as much directing. Um, but yeah, uh, you just need one. Um, it's, it's, necessary uh to have a spiritual father uh, it doesn't have to be anything that formal um it, it really doesn't uh you just you, all you do is just ask somebody you just you just ask your priest or uh some other i mean i guess it could be uh, a deacon or some other cleric you just ask them it's not really that uh, difficult a lot of, a lot of people are more like worried about the the weirdness uh of or like awkwardness or the fact that like people usually don't do that anymore but just do it bring it back bro do you have do you have a do you have a large rant about do any of you have a large rant about spiritual directors um yeah but the main point is this spiritual directors mostly work with people in the purgative way because most people are in the purgative way but the problem is that because nobody studies moral theology anymore, they're going to give you a bunch of like absolutely terrible advice uh, on morals. Um, they will often tell you that you're being scrupulous for no reason. Um, because even though like what you're saying like is against the definition of scrupulosity, because they're going to pretend that scrupulosity is believing in strict ideas. Um, <clears throat> even if those ideas are like unanimously attested by the authorities. Um, so the thing with spiritual directors is it's very important to have one. Make sure that you, you direct most of your conversation with them about actually developing like spiritual techniques and praying yeah. properly. If you try to go too deep into moral questions, you go, you're wading into a territory with them that they think that they understand and they don't. Yeah, that's what I was going to say as well. They don't really know. Uh, it, it, the quality has decreased. Yeah. Make sure you get a good one. Yeah. Oh, wow. Good thing he asked this uh, this follow-up question. How do you discern a good spiritual director? What should the content of direction be? I feel like I either way, I don't really um, ask my spiritual director about uh, moral issues. I've never really felt the the necessity. Uh, usually, it's specifically about. Um, it, it's it's usually specifically uh, talking about uh, various like inclinations or imperfections uh, to and and how to remove those imperfections uh, in order to um, in order to direct direct oneself uh, more holy uh, holy w h o l o y uh, towards God. Uh, usually I, I don't ask about, uh, discerning, uh, like casuistic, uh, questions. Um, at yeah. least that's me. I don't, I don't, 
I mean, I, I guess like, yeah, a lot of people probably do have casuistic questions and probably that is going to be the area where you're going to have most issues. Someone, really someone says we should just assent to our spiritual director's moral judgments. Uh, if they haven't read the moral theologians and some things, look, if, you ever, if your teacher hasn't read the moral theologian on a certain issue, that's fine. But if they haven't read the moral theologians at all, and they don't even know the principles, and they're not familiar with any of the loci, and they don't know what any of the authors have said about any of the loci, you can't trust what they have to say about moral issues because they're making it up as they go along, and they're depending upon a sort of localism that Woodbury talks about in that dissertation we, we had on this podcast a couple of months ago. They're just engaged. All that they're doing is... Well, it seems weird to me that this, and it seems normal to me that this. This is exactly the same level of insight that a random uh, semi-devout conservative Catholic could tell you. You're not going to have anything better than that, anything more informed than that, and you certainly have no obligation to assent to anything that they say on things that they don't know anything about. True. That's that's true. That's true. But I, there there is there is an aspect under which we can say just just to clarify. I don't think Hassan was saying that you just like disregard uh, everything that they of say. Course. Of course. But uh, pra practically speaking, like there's there's a story from the life of Saint Ignatius where he was he was uh, struggling with scrupulosity. And he was like, okay, <laughs> what I'm going to do is I'm just not going to eat or drink until God gets rid of my scrupulosity or I die. <laughs> and and uh, St. Ignatius went to confession weekly, uh, which actually uh, for, for saints of that era, isn't that much. Uh, some of them actually went to like confession daily, uh, which is interesting. Um, but he went to his confessor and revealed to his confessor uh, that he was uh, doing this to get rid of his scrupulosity. And his confessor was like, okay, you should eat. And St. Ignatius was like, okay, I'll eat. And then he ate uh, like he like he had always done on Sundays. So that, that's to illustrate the fact that, yes, there is there is a um, sort of, uh, there, there is a virtue, uh, obviously, to, to obedience, and to obedience to one's uh, spiritual director. But to do to do something which would be harmful to one's moral or spiritual life would would not be an, an appropriate uh, obedience uh, would not be an appropriate uh, response to that. If one had, if one is able to, if one is able to, if one is able to judge otherwise. So I, I think I, I think this is this is very important. Uh, because you you have you have certain people that uh, so some of some of uh, you guys uh, may not uh, really know anything about this at all, um, so it wouldn't really be uh, appropriate to disregard uh, whatever uh, your spiritual director says, and probably uh, you you'll never be in that situation. But let's say you you begin to uh, become educated by the doctors of the church. And you read, let's say, St. Alphonsus Liguori, uh, the moral doctor of the church, whose authority is greater than all other moral theologians. And he says 
something about a, a certain act being moral or immoral. And then your spiritual director gives you a, uh, a different, um, a different judgment. You have, uh, you have a reason um, to not assent unto their judgment, but let's say you're in a different situation. And basically at that point where you haven't researched into it, it's really their feelings against your feelings of uh, if, if uh, on the assumption that your spiritual director hasn't, um, hasn't studied these issues that really at, at that point their their intuition is going to be much better than your intuition so you should probably just uh assent unto them but yeah uh it's it's in a very narrow and, and, and qualified situation uh where you should um but where, where you may have the obligation uh not to assent unto their judgment but generally uh most of you it's it's not going to apply but yes uh there's there's definitely this this rampant problem Uh, all right, bro. Can you answer a question that was asked earlier, Christian? Uh, what was right, it? Because I don't really know how to. A uh, question that was asked was um, by what's his name? Um, where is this? Lord Yamcha. No, somebody, somebody, somebody quick, quickly. I I starred this. Um, can't see it. I wanted to answer something quickly. No, somebody asked. Okay, so I know my question is a bit off topic, so forgive me if it's an inconvenience, but how can we prove that evil is a privation? Okay, that, that's a really, really good question. So when we think of uh, what being is. So being is really that a term uh, we give uh, analogically to all uh, which has that that act of be or act of uh, act of existence. So uh, when we think of of being, all being uh, is is formally and intrinsically uh, is upheld by God and is a certain participation uh, in in God who is self subsisting being. So uh, now when we're defining what goodness is, which goodness is obviously the opposite of evil, goodness is a certain aspect or relation of being to uh, what's said to be the aptitude faculty. So the, the rational appetite of man, or, or really the rational appetite of God, is what it's transcendentally or universally grounded in. So uh, the, the issue is saying that evil is not a privation. You would have to say that being, uh, that, that evil could be a certain aspect of being. Because if you're saying that evil is not an aspect of being, then you're saying that evil uh, uh, doesn't exist, and therefore you're admitting that it's a privation. Uh, so, uh, if if you're going if you're going to say that evil is a certain aspect of being, then you are going to have to say that God is uh, blasphemously uh, that that God is uh, able to to give some sort of participation uh, of Himself and that be evil. That that and then you would uh, be admitting that God Himself is is evil, which would which would be utter blasphemy. And, and uh, may God curse anybody who who, who says something like that. Um, so, so this is this is the, the the sort of obvious conclusion of the Augustinian and Thomist uh, idea that evil is a privation. Um, so, yeah, that that's the that's the reason. But uh, was there a different question, Hassan? Uh, there was a question about the ascent of faith. Uh, you can't see it anymore. Uh, yeah, I, I saw those discussions were happening like an hour and a half, two hours ago. Yeah, it was a pretty interesting question, so I wanted to shelve it for later because I thought you might be able to say something good about it. 
Yeah, yeah. This was this was my point. Uh, are most people too uh, retarded to discern whether they should disregard what their spiritual director says? Yes, that was my point. Um, most of you are uh, far too uh, retarded. <laughs> <You're calling> <laughs> <an> <laughs> idiot. No, the, 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 I was just using the language of the questioner. He, he asked whether are most people too retarded. Uh, you just call your audience retarded. Dumb. Is, can be used in multiple different senses, and there's actually a Catholic sense to the term. Yeah. Retarded. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, okay. I don't think that was the sense. There is. There is. Uh, okay, okay. Intelle bro. Intellectually disabled. There you go. Or, or uninformed. Bro, that's just calling them dumb. That's exact. Okay, yeah. Okay, never. yes, yes. It's okay to say that people are dumb, bro. It's, some people <laughs> yeah. just lack yeah, intelligence, you just bro. You just call them all dumb. You just call everyone. 50% of people are below average intelligence, which makes them dumb. 50% <laughs> of people are above average intelligence, which makes them like, smart. I like, how, yes, you're, I like how you're tripling down. You're like tripling <laughs> down. <laughs> Dende, this the, the in this podcast he has called them dumb many times. You know, you know, you need you need some you need some tough love. You need some you need to be honest with yourself. You need to realize the the insufficiency of yourself. Once you realize you're dumb, you're I'm not asking more questions. Yeah. No, okay. I'm dumb too. I'm I'm a I'm a retard. Um, once you realize the radical insufficiency of yourself, that 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 is, that is the only way in which you're able to. You're able to proceed and to grow in the intellectual, moral, and, uh, and spiritual life. It's, it's the only way is to realize the radical insufficiency of the current position you are in, and to not be to, to not to not settle for anything less than perfection. This is something that uh, that Father Alfonso uh, Rodriguez says is that if you really if you don't shoot for anything but perfection. Most likely, you're just going to fall into fall into mortal sin. So if you shoot, okay, I'm just going to fall into venial sin. That that's your goal. If your if your goal is to just fall into venial sin, most likely due to the weakness of your nature, you're going to fall below your goal, and you're going to fall straight into mortal sin. Now, if your goal is to constantly work towards the perfection of the spiritual life, you might get lucky and only fall into venial sin, and you won't you won't you won't be damned. So. The goal, the goal is always perfection. The goal is to realize that you are radically insufficient um, for for what is uh, what is going to happen, and you have to find your sufficiency in Christ, not yourself. So you have to realize, yes, I am spiritually, intellectually, and morally retarded. I am. That's where I'm at, and my goal. Uh... My goal <laughs> I'm going to clip that. I'm clipping that. I'm clipping that. Look, this is the language that they use, bro. <laughs> I know, but you... The, okay, just... No, you nothing, have to go nothing on. good. Okay, nothing good happens after hour two in the stream. You you just have to you just have to I'm, settle with. I'm that. clipping. I'm clipping the. I am spiritually, morally, and intellectually retarded. I'm clipping. All you need to do is wait for one person who doesn't like you, and this video can get you screwed. Congratulations. Why would you be screwed? Have I have I said anything that was? You just called or... yourself intellectually Dude, retarded. People, people consider the word retard be a serious slur nowadays what yeah there are a lot of people who do that what do you know you're so out of touch dude dude oh. I've, i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure i've literally tweeted out the term like in a thousand different instances 
Okay, not not saying my not saying my Twitter usage should be, should be the standard You're... for anybody. You're making it worse, bro. Stop, oh, bro. Just stop, bro. How about you answer this nice question here about extra ecclesia? Just calm down, bro. Okay, go, go do your job. Go back here. There's, there's nothing. There's nothing. Okay. Okay. Though actually, there's a moral theology. Uh, sounds like a liter of copium coming out of Wagner's mouth. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to ban you. Put you in timeout. I timed you out. Cry. He's right, though. He's right, though. I'm banning everybody that speaks against me. <laughs> <laughs> Can't believe these are the people I go to advice for. Yeah, well, you're blocked for five minutes now. So think about what you've done. So do you think we could? you could speak to my question on the sense of extraclesium nullus salus, especially in light of Vatican II? It seems like the sense changed, but obviously that would mean transformation. That's crazy. Didn't we already talk about this? Yeah, I think we already we already talked about this. Yeah. Yes. Um, so just give the, a pedag the yeah. pedagogical distinction, and yes, people are going to bring up Monsignor Fenton's work. Monsignor Fenton is, he's being a bit, um, for lack of a better term, he's being a bit autistic uh, with, with his work. And like, no offense, he's, he's right um, that this is merely a pedagogical distinction. But I, sometimes you just need to phrase things in a bit imprecise way so that people understand. So the distinction between the body and the soul of the church is that is that people who are truly united to God by faith, hope, and charity outside of the church, uh, who are not guilty uh, for their uh, for their lack of explicit knowledge of the faith, will implicitly desire uh, union with the body, uh, the body of the church. So the outward um, communion of the church. Thus, uh, technically speaking, like we can't make this harsh distinction between body and soul because they they are. Uh, united by uh, by desire with the body of the church just as a catechumen is united by desire with the body of the church by his uh, explicit desire to join the church so also those outside um of of the sort of uh, th those who are invincibly ignorant with uh with charity with perfect contrition for their sins and uh, also who are invincibly ignorant of the faith uh, and, and have faith, which is uh, based upon the, the, the natural, uh, the revelation of God in nature, um, kind of inflamed uh, by the working of the spirit. Uh, the, these people are going to have an implicit uh, desire uh, for joining the body of the church and therefore can be said to be members of the body of the church. So this is a bit uh, of Fenton's point of like, OK, we can't make this harsh distinction between body and soul, but that's pedagogically helpful is that these people are in the soul of the church. And uh, by their desire are brought into the church uh, in its fullness, just as catechumens uh, are. So, so really, there, there's, there's not. This isn't a huge deal. Uh, I can, I can bring you, bring forward uh, the texts of Thomas, which talk about this. So, people are going to say, "Oh, well, Fort Lateran, for Florence, uh, all, all of these medieval texts are are clearly talking about the the damnation of everybody outside of the body of the church." Well, yeah, obviously. With, but with the qualifications that the theologians uh, made then and then they make now, uh, which I think is completely um, univocal. So, there.
you said you explained how the death of Mary is dogmatic or dogmistic. 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 Yeah. He just he is just it's dogmatic, but he actually <laughs> put S. It's really it's, really dende, did he? I thought he meant a different explain. word. It's easy to explain. Uh, sure. So so munificentissimus Deus, which dogmatically taught the assumption of Mary, said that it was already dogmatic, the assumption of but prior to this specific re-promulgation of the teaching. Now, the idea that a teaching cannot be multiply taught of with, dogma with a dogmatic mode of teaching is clearly false. There are many times that the same infallible truths have been retaught uh, extraordinarily, such as, for example, the canon of scripture in Florence and in Trent. Um, there, there are tons of these. Um, and... So basically, when you're looking at Munificentissimus Deus, we're told in paragraph 12 through about um, 16 that it's already been taught by the universal agreement of the ordinary teaching authority and various other things as well. And uh, for proof of this, the Vatican Council is, is quoted about the ordinary universal magisterium and uh, and then in uh, in number sixteen, Mediator Dei is quoted, which says that we can make conclusions about the legs credendi. We have uh, epistemological access to the legs credendi from the legs orandi of the church, which is citing the principle of Saint Prosper in the Index of Celestine sent to Ephesus one. Um, and uh, of course, that text says that the uh, let the law of supplication establish the law of belief. Now that doesn't mean that the law that we don't believe something until we've prayed it and then suddenly we start believing it. It means that epistemically we can be sure of what the church has believed based on how she has prayed. Okay. So uh the ordinary universal authority of the church is clear in the liturgical worship of the church, uh regarding uh regarding like what she has prayed about, which the she therefore believes. Okay. Except if something is mentioned for me edification and is incidental like certain things which used to be mentioned in the breviary although it's morally necessary to uh, not confuse people so they have been removed multiple times when they were discovered very close to the group now uh the the liturgical books uh as we are told uh in number 17 the liturgical books deal with the feast either of the dormition or the assumption and there are expressions that agree in testifying that when the mother of God passed from this earthly exile to heaven, what happened to her body was, by the decree of divine providence, in keeping with the dignity of the mother of the word incarnate, other privilege, with the other privilege that she has been accorded. Okay, so what happens now is that various different liturgical texts are adduced as dogmatic proofs that the assumption is already a dogma. Keep this in mind. Now, what does the first liturgical proof say? The first liturgical proof is taken from the Latin liturgy. It's footnote 11, if you want to find it in the text. And the quote is from the Gregorian Sacramentary, which says, Venerable to us, O Lord, is the festivity of this day on which the Holy Mother of God suffered temporal death, but still could not be kept down by the bonds of death who has begotten your son, our Lord incarnate, from herself. So uh, there, there are many other instances. You find um, uh, you find it 
referred to, of course, in the Byzantine liturgy as well. But the Roman liturgical texts are are like uh, they're basically a certain assurance that the universal church believes what is in the the, the Roman liturgy. Um, and so this um, you know this this principle is is like very clear. Um, since Munificentissimus uses the same uh, reasoning to determine that the assumption was already dogma, it's very clear that from the same principles, her death is already dogma. Um, some people, some people, uh, and there are respected theologians who say, actually, we can believe that she um, that she didn't die, but this is a methodological error. This comes from not understanding the place of the liturgy, the worship of the church, as a theological source. Fun stuff. So after this question, <clears throat> I'll be leaving and I will answer Super Chats. But other than that, I have other stuff to do today. So can't go for another two and a half hours. Sorry, guys. One day, one day Hassan and I are going to do like an eight-hour stream where we answer literally every question. <laughs> I don't know about that. Bro, just get a cup of coffee, man. You'll be fine. I mean, answering answering people's random questions is is like already a full time job for you, man. It's like you, you don't you don't type type in VC for no reason, bro. Take and a day off, bro. You, day you off, should man. take a day off from this. This yeah. is probably tiring. It's true, Hassan. <clears throat> what do you mean? What is it? It's probably tiring to answer all these questions. Uh, yeah, of course it is. And people send the same questions repeatedly in, uh, people come, people go repeatedly in DMs and ask the same retarded questions over and over and over and over and over. And it's like, <laughs> when will the community get an idea of the answer to this question? And also that you have people who don't know what the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit are. And they're asking you for like proofs of the filioque before the year 500. And it's like, what what are you doing? Why? why? That's so true. Why? The gifts of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, actually, reminder: uh, Austin Woodbury. Uh, he has a book on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I I did the reprint on that. If you just look up in Amazon, Austin Woodbury, gifts of the Holy Spirit. But gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, one of one of the most important. Like it's it's up there with like knowing the Lord's Prayer and like Apostles' Creed. Um, so yeah, definitely learn about what the gifts of the Holy Spirit are, uh, very important, uh, have a lot to do with the, uh, with the mystical life. So just a good You're reminder. Expected. They're one of the things children are supposed to have memorized. Like, what are you guys doing? Dude, but I need to know about my filioque quotes before, before uh, it's, 500. It, it's really frustrating. Like I've, I've noticed this, we've talked before about like, how people are supposed to, under, to to understand theology as the path of loving God uh, better, which necessitates contemplative prayer and a contemplative attitude towards the doctrines learned. But so many people will just like, like obnoxiously have this intellectual gluttony where they'll just like swallow badly formulated theses from YouTube and Discord conversations and articles by Catholic answers and stuff like that. They'll just drink it all up every single day and they'll look at every single dogma so so one-dimensionally. Like, for example, like you, you accept a certain doctrine, and then you never contemplate it. 
you pray you pray the liturgy you, you, pr you pray the rosary and you still have like no idea what the ascension of jesus has to do with your sanctification and with his relation and for his relationship with you like do, do you not have questions that arise from your prayer life instead of questions that just arise from like looking at people who disagree with us speak on the internet or like looking at people having conversations on discord or something why, why don't you come with questions that actually come from your prayer life about the mysteries of the faith why don't you do that a bit more often then there'll be interesting questions and not just the same ones repeated by literally everybody over and over and over and over and over this is this is why i don't uh this is why i don't answer questions usually in dms but if i know my, my go off moment is about to be right now because i do answer patron dms so <laughs> 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 Hassan, Hassan does it for free. You have to pay me to, to, to answer the same question over and over again. Yeah, Actually, you're the professional, most... bro. You're the professional. Yeah, I'm just some guy. So real, so true. Yeah. Actually, most uh, I I will I will uh, say this. Most of the people who ask me questions on Patreon actually ask they actually ask pretty good questions. Uh, usually, it has to do with uh, spiritual stuff. I, I don't. And most people who ask me questions on Patreon actually don't ask me about strictly um dogmatic issues uh so yeah if you be on patreon uh that's one of the things you get a bunch of other stuff you also get to help me out usually the, the help you out is kind of primary but yeah you get other stuff benefits and stuff yeah. so yeah um and i just wanted to comment on what hassan was saying yeah because when it comes to and, and this is this is what is so glorious and we were talking about this yesterday this is what, what is so glorious about uh about Catholic theology in particular, about the method in which the Catholic theologians uh, practice their, their trade is, is for us. We, we don't only uh, draw forth uh, from the deposit of faith, certain dogmas and then uh, uh, doctrines uh, from, from which uh, from revelation, but actually uh, theology isn't only a science in that sense. But it's also sapiential. That is, it's it's connected to wisdom. So we 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 don't only draw out conclusions. We also contemplate contemplate the the our, our fundamental premises, and we we view them in relation to their proper cause, which is which is going to be uh, God under the formal aspect uh, under the the formal aspect uh, God formally under the intimate aspect of His deity. So that that that's that's what's so glorious about theology, because a Catholic theology in particular, is that we we contemplate. We we don't only always always draw forth. We we contemplate uh, that which we draw forth, and also those principles from which we go. And that's why in uh, where in other sciences, like a, a physicist reading a third century book on physics would be seen as an idiot like why are you reading a third century book on physics it would, it would just kind of be more of an interest but the catholic and most 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 of you don't don't treat theology this way the catholic always goes back to the sources of revelation the catholic always goes back to sacred scripture and contemplates uh revelation in sacred scripture we always go back to the source and font of revelation we always go back there, and we always contemplate it in order to to, to gain a uh, to gain new uh, insights uh, into it, and then communicate uh, that with other in or others in order to help them uh, with their contemplation of the faith, in order that they may know and love God more. 
So it's something completely, uh, completely different and something uh, that that comes with our description of theology is not only scientific, but also sapiential. Yeah, and it, usually the most most of the way that people uh, most of the way that people uh, consider theology is they, they think of it under the aspect of positive theology. They call it apologetics. It's not really apologetics that they're engaging in, but positive theology. And positive theology, what it does is it looks at the dogmas of the church, and then it looks into the the sources of revelation in order to. Uh, draw forth, not not really draw forth, but to verify, said so to verify the dogma in the sources of revelation. And really, to be honest, that's not even what they're doing. They're, they're, they have a perverted form of, of positive theology, because not only are they looking uh, for really looking through the, the, the source of revelation in order to verify that which is taught to us by the uh, by the proximate rule of faith, that is the magisterium of the church. But what they're doing is they're really looking for some sort of like evidence-based approach uh, uh, to a to theology is is kind of go through the sources and construct uh, what what they think is is the best rather than the the old principle of verification. Uh, that that's what the, the, the Thomas have, have spoken this language of we we verify. Uh, so so if the the dogma, for example, of uh, let's say the uh, the divinity of christ i don't go throughout scripture to prove the divinity of christ and in the sense of prove that means to to look for evidence uh that would that would justify my belief in the divinity of christ no no no, that's not what i do rather i go through the new testament this this is a, a bit of a slight nuance but i go through to verify that which i already hold by faith i'm looking i'm looking through revelation to see the places where this is expressed after after my my ascent of faith so that's what a catholic theologian does they verify they don't prove in the sense that most people think of this term prove where's that face for hassan we have we have one yeah. last I just saw something really bad. I'll tell you later. You saw something really bad. Was it Dende's face? Come on, that was what? funny. <sighs> okay, everybody at home is what? laughing. Okay, I'm supposed to answer this super chat right here. And then I'm supposed to go. So, um, why does Justin Martyr call Christ the second God? Okay. And I'm sorry if this is short or uh, not well explained, but what it, what we have to we have to recognize that there is a certain development that occurs uh, throughout the language which is used uh, which is used in theology. So we have to ask ourselves the question of whether there is a formal contradiction between what the author is teaching and the later definition, not whether there's a material contradiction between what the former and later are teaching. Uh, I'll give you an example. It technically, and, and don't clip me on this, technically the phrase, there are three gods, if understood in its proper sense, could be an orthodox phrase. If by that we mean that there are three subjects which possess the numerically singular divine nature, 
if we mean that, then yeah, technically we can say there are three gods. But Catholic theology, by the term God, has always referenced to uh, to the divine nature, not necessarily uh, not, not necessarily uh, the the multiplication of subjects. So where the nature is multiplied, we would we would uh, multiply the number. Where the nature is not multiplied, we do not multiply the number, and that's why we that's why later theology will will always refer to there being one God. Where you might get earlier authors that uh, seem like they're referring to a second or third God. Now, some some will say some will say that uh, Justin Martyr and some earlier fathers were unorthodox in their uh, in their theology. I just think that what uh, what the scholars are doing is they're not really distinguishing properly between material and formal contradictions uh, because earlier authors just didn't use language uh, as precisely as we do uh, and we're kind of a bit prejudiced against them uh, for this which we shouldn't be because i mean historical historical theologians usually don't actually know much about theology that's why if you've noticed that is that is very true. Didn't uh didn't uh Mr. B surpass PewDiePie in subs? I don't know. I'm waiting for me to pass them both in subs. Dende. It will happen. Dende is taste testing the recipes been preparing for the stream. Yeah, that's what? them commenting on you constantly uh smacking your lips into the microphone. Is he? You wait, what? You can hear me? Yes, they said that multiple times. Like somebody <laughs> Someone said in the chat, stop smacking your lips on the mic, Dende. It's annoying. Uh, I apologize. <laughs> so true. Sorry. Okay. Thinking about stuff and I see. I th- when I think about stuff, I just like whisper. You don't do that? No. Am I Am I like schizo? What do you, am I going what schizo? Do you and Christian do for a living, Hassan? Yeah, Hassan is a... Uh, is a student. I'm also a student, but then I do this because obviously I make money from this. And then I do some, uh, some side gigs if I need extra money. So, yeah, I don't, I don't really have like, like a, uh, a normal job, I guess you could say, because I mean, that's really not too, uh, feasible for somebody who has classes all the time. So, yep. I think that's all. Anything else, guys? Mm, not really. There were a couple of other interesting things, but this has gone on for so long, bro. I know. It's like almost three hours now to yeah. 30 people still watching. You guys, you guys are dedicated. Okay. I will, I'll probably talk to you later, Hassan and Dende. And I will see everybody else sometime this week. And God bless.